This is Audible. Audible.com presents the Senate Judiciary Committee's hearings on the nomination of Judge John Roberts to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. We invite you to visit Audible.com for the best downloadable audiobooks, as well as subscriptions and podcasts of top audio programs, including The New York Times, This American Life, The Wall Street Journal, and The New Yorker. The committee will resume. Senator Cole, 20 minutes. <coughs> Judge Roberts. Senator, we spent quite a bit of time yesterday discussing how you would decide cases, and as we all know, it is your view that Supreme Court justices are umpires <coughs> who are neutrally deciding cases. I want to discuss with you another area where I believe your analogy falls somewhat short. Supreme Court not only, as you know, has the power to decide cases and to continue to construe the Constitution, but it also has the sole and the absolute power to decide which cases it hears, which cases it decides, which parties get to be heard, and which parties do not get to be heard. So if you're confirmed, you will get to choose which cases will be placed on the Supreme Court's docket with the vote of yourself and only three other justices, as you know. Making this choice, your opinions, your perspectives, and your life experiences obviously matter quite a bit. Much more than an empire calling balls and strikes, you are, in that sense, a manager who is really setting the field with players to decide what the menu is going to be like. So this power is really quite important, and it's crucial, and it's important that we understand that. When we look at your role in terms of your own description, in recent times, the Supreme Court has received appeals in nearly 7,000 cases a year. And as you know, in recent times, the Supreme Court has heard only about 80 cases a year. In other words, the justices choose to hear only about 1% of the appeals that they receive. My question for you, Judge Roberts, is should you be confirmed, how will you decide which cases will make the cut and will be heard by the Supreme Court and what will guide your complete discretion to choose which cases to hear? Um, I appreciate the question, uh, Senator. It is an area where uh, I will be happily concede that uh, the justices are not acting uh, just like umpires in deciding which cases they're going to hear as opposed to how they're going to decide them. Um, my perspective has changed uh, a little bit in this area. Certainly when I was practicing law, a lot of what I spent my tri time trying to do was get the Supreme Court to take a case. As you know, you file these things called petitions for certiorari, which are really quite extensive arguments about why the court should hear your case, having really not that much to do with the merits, whether it was right or wrong, but just why the court needs to issue an opinion in this area. Um, and I thought they weren't taking enough cases. When I became a court of appeals judge, I thought you didn't need to have more cases taken up for review. Um, but uh, the considerations, some are pretty well established. Uh, the job of the Supreme Court is to ensure the uniformity and consistency of federal law, in particular of interpretations of the Constitution. So the clearest case that the court should hear, they should grant certiorari on, as they, as they say, is when two different courts of appeals are interpreting a law differently. Obviously the law should mean the same thing in every part of the country, and if two different courts take a different view of the law, that's the kind of case uh, the court ought to be taking. 
Um, I think the court should, as a general matter, and again, I, other justices have expressed this view as well, uh, grant review in cases in which a lower court strikes down an act of Congress. Um, I don't think that's an absolute rule, but certainly as a general matter. If an act of Congress is going to be declared unconstitutional, I think the Supreme Court uh, ought to be the one determining that as a final matter and generally not leave it to a court of appeals. So those are two categories. When there's a conflict, when an act is uh, found to be unconstitutional. Beyond that, uh, and this is where I agree with you, the, the umpire analogy does not hold up. There is a lot of discretion in deciding whether it's a, uh, the right time to grant review in a case. The uh, people who practice before the court talk about the court letting an issue percolate a little bit. In other words, get more than just one or two decisions from the courts of appeals, wait until others have had a uh, chance to weigh in. The theory is that makes it more likely the Supreme Court will get it right if they have the benefit of several decisions from the lower courts rather than just one. Uh, other cases, their uh, justices determine that that's not appropriate. It's not appropriate to wait till the issue develops a little more. They want to look at it uh, expeditiously. Um, and it, it, it's hard to lay down categorical rules uh, in that area. I, I have expressed the view, and it may be a view that I'll have to be educated on further if I am confirmed, and uh, I'm not stating it as a solid view. I do think uh, there's room for the court to take more cases. Um, they're now, they hear about half the number of cases they did 25 years ago. There may be good reasons for that that I'll learn if I am confirmed, but just looking at it from the outside, um, I think they're, they could contribute more to the clarity and uniformity of the law by taking more cases. I have heard others say they could contribute to the clarity and uniformity of the law by taking fewer cases, but uh, I don't subscribe to that view. I think, I think there's room for additional uh, cases on the docket. I think we would uh, we agree that it's an enormous power that power of decision it's a, it's a very active power it's not benign in any way uh, if justices for example decide not to hear a case whatever the merits that is the final decision is that not correct? Uh, that's right the decision of the Court of Appeals stands uh, in that case now um, it is true that I think the justices generally uh, look at their duty and obligation to ensure consistency um, in, in a fairly dispassionate and objective way. In other words, it doesn't matter how a particular case came out. If it's different in one part of the country and another, most of the justices, in my experience, sure. uh, readily agree that that's the kind of case they need to address. Well, and just to, just to uh, refer to two that were taken up without any reference from any lower court, one was Youngstown. Uh, steel and tool, um, which was, you know, the ability of the government to seize a steel mill during a time of war. And of course, another one that I'm interested in your comment on is Bush v. Gore, in which the court decided to directly insert itself into a presidential campaign. Um, I'm interested in not what happened after they decided to do that, but that the decision they made in terms of its propriety, its impact on the courts, the court standing in the country, you must have thought about it, I'm sure, a great deal when it happened. I'm sure you have an opinion on their decision to enter that case, and I think we'd like to know what that opinion is. Well, um, you mentioned first the Youngstown case, and it's a category, and I think perhaps the Bush versus Gore case, the, perhaps the justices concluded it fell into that category. There are certain cases, um, they don't come along all that often, uh, that are, by their importance, 
significant enough for the court to take. In other words, they don't fit the description of a conflict among the courts of appeals or an act of Congress held unconstitutional, but they are otherwise sufficiently important that the court will grant review and take those cases. Certainly, the Youngstown uh, case was of that sort. It started out actually in the, the D.C. Uh, court, uh, and the hearing was first there, and then the, the court granted that. But the decision by a president to seize the steel mills uh, based on his constitutional law, that's an important enough issue. You want the Supreme Court to issue a final ruling on that. On the decision in, in Bush versus Gore and the determination of whether to grant review in that case, um, again, that's not something that you, you, you don't know what on what basis the justices make a decision to grant review. You just get an order that says review is granted. Uh, in that case, you had a decision of a state court that apparently the justices thought should be reviewed, um, and obviously uh, expeditious treatment was needed, as I think it was in the Youngstown case as well. They're capable of moving expeditiously uh, when an important matter requires them to do so. I asked you what your opinion of that decision was at that time. Well, that's an area where I've not been, uh, I've not felt free to comment whether or not I agree with particular decisions or. Well, it's or not likely to come up again. Well, I, I do think that the issue about the propriety of uh, the Supreme Court review and matters of disputed electoral uh, uh, contests, uh, it is a matter that uh, could come up again. Obviously, the particular parameters in that case won't, but but. Um, it is a very recent precedent, uh, and that type of a decision is one where I thought it inappropriate to comment on whether I think they were correct or not. Okay, Judge Roberts, so one of the most important constitutional events of our lifetime was the nomination of Robert Bork to the Supreme Court. Congress chose to exercise its role to advise, and in this case, not to consent, based upon judicial philosophy and the strongly held opinions of the nominee. In effect, Congress told the president that we have an important role to play in the process as well. Do you believe that the Senate's rejection of Judge Bork in 1987 was a reasonable and respectable act? Or instead, do you view it as a period of unfair partisanship? Um, what were your thoughts about that case as it unfolded? Senator, I don't, I don't think it's appropriate for me as a nominee to comment on uh, the Senate's treatment of other nominees, and I, I would respectfully decline to do that. All right. Judge Roberts, when we met a few weeks ago in my office, we discussed the Supreme Court's recent property rights decision. In that case, Kilo, of, uh, Kilo versus the city of New London, the court found it permissible under the Constitution for a city to seize private homes against the wishes of their owners so that a large pharmaceutical company could build a private industrial park and a research facility. A total of 15 homes were condemned, including a home lived in by an 87-year-old woman for her entire life, a home that her family had owned for over 100 years. Many people, including a majority, I believe, of people in my state as well as myself, were quite disturbed by this ruling, which appears to place much private property at risk by greatly expanding the eminent domain powers of, you know, local government. We discussed this when you were in my office, and you told me that you were, quote, surprised uh, by the decision. So could you expand on it a bit uh, this afternoon and explain why well, you were surprised? Well, um, I did tell you that was my initial reaction. I remember hearing about the decision driving uh, actually back from a judicial conference with another judge. And um, 
we all learn in law school. Uh, the first one of the first cases you study is called Calder against Bull. Has a basic proposition: the government cannot take property from A and give it to B. Um, uh, when I read the decision, um, I understood what the majority's position was: the difficulty of drawing a line uh, between things that are obviously public use, like the railroad, road, things that are traditionally uh, the subject of the exercise of eminent domain, and other uh, uh, activities that are not as clearly within that range. Of course, Justice O'Connor in her dissent thought that a line could be drawn between whether it was available to the public or not, and, and that certainly was available. The majority did say that it was not ruling on the starkest example, in other words, just determining to take property from A to B because you think B could make better use of it. The issue arose, as you noted in your question, in the context of an urban renewal redevelopment project, and that may be limited to that context or, or may not. Um, I do know there's been extensive legislative reaction to the decision. I know a number of states have passed laws already uh, saying we do not authorize the use of the power of eminent domain to take uh, for, for a use that's going to be from one private uh, owner to another. And that's certainly an appropriate reaction to a court's decision in this area. What the court is saying, what the majority is saying is because of the difficulty of drawing a line, this issue is really le left up to the legislature. And if the legislature wants to draw the line in a particular place, it has that authority. Um, uh, but it, it certainly uh, is a decision that was closely divided, five to four, and it has gotten a lot of legislative reaction. And I, the point I would only make is that it's perhaps a good example of the fact that legislatures, legislators, have a responsibility to protect the rights of the people just as much as courts. And one way they can protect the rights of the people in this area, if they think it appropriate, is to restrict themselves in saying we will not use the eminent domain power to the broadest extent that the Supreme Court has said we are authorized to do. Did I understand uh, your opinion on whether or not that case was correctly decided? Or are you, are you not? No, I, I, again, that's You're particularly since it's an area they do leave, uh, specifically leave open the question about right. whether it applies outside of a redevelopment project. That's an issue that could come before the court. Um, it, it's, it's not one I feel appropriate to comment on. It would or would not surprise you if we'd not heard the last of that? Um, it's certainly one of those areas that could come before the court again, even in its present form. I know the author of the majority opinion has said it was an area where he, as a, as a personal policy matter, wouldn't have exercised that authority. But of course, the issue there was the legal uh, issue, not policy preferences. Um, it, it, it could come before the court again, yes. You'll have a decision to make if it, if it does rise up to that level. Is it possible that your, your decision, along with three other justices, might be to put that on the docket? That, that would be one of the decisions that, uh, in the exercise of the, the, the cert process, as they call it, for short for the certiorari decision, and um, that would certainly be an issue that could come before the court. And they already have, of course, four dissenters uh, who may be anxious to revisit it or, or not. I don't know. I don't want to presume the, uh, how they would view it uh, on an ongoing basis. Judge Roberts, I'd like to talk a little bit about antitrust. I'm the ranking member on the antitrust subcommittee. To me, antitrust is not some mysterious legal theory that only lawyers 
can talk about or understand. Antitrust is just another word for fair competition. The laws that we use to protect consumers and competitors from unfair and illegal trade practice is what antitrust is all about. You agree that government enforcement of antitrust law is crucial to ensuring that consumers are protected from anti-competitive practices such as price fixing and illegal maintenance of monopolies. Uh, yes, I do, Senator. Um, in fact, when I was in private practice, um, uh, one of the cases I handled was the, the Microsoft antitrust case on behalf of government officials, the states in particular, a number of states uh, retained me to argue that case before the D.C. Circuit on bond. Uh, so I certainly appreciate the role of governments, both state and federal, in enforcing the protections of the antitrust laws because, as you know, there is concurrent authority in that, uh, in that area. The Sherman Act, of course, on the federal level, and then what people call the baby Sherman Acts on the state level. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because on June 14, 1983, which is more than 20, 20 years ago, in a memo to the White House counsel, Fred Fielding, you wrote, quote, enforcement of federal rights is advanced most effectively by private suits in antitrust cases. So isn't it often true that individual consumers don't have the resources to pursue, to, to pursue these private suits against large corporations? And isn't that why government enforcement of antitrust is essential? Uh, and so you would perhaps not be feeling the same way today as you did 22 years ago when you made that comment? Well, I think it depends on what area you're talking about. There, uh, I do think that the system established under the Sherman Act of private antitrust enforcement and, of course, the opportunity to recover additional damages uh, and attorney's fees and other aspects has been an effective tool in enforcing the law. There are areas, as you mentioned, uh, if the issue is mostly consumer uh, rights as opposed to uh, uh, business rivals, uh, that the government action may be more necessary in those areas as opposed to the others. And I know that um, government antitrust regulators make those determinations every day, that their resources are best directed to areas where consumers or attorneys bringing class actions on consumers' behalf, whatever the reasons where the uh, incentive system for private litigation may not be as effective. And that's often the area where uh, state attorneys general at the Justice Department decide to get involved to supplement the private enforcement activity. All right. I'll just ask uh, one more question before my time expires. And that's upon the important role that Chief Justice is a place as the head of judicial conference, which is the organization of the entire federal judiciary. As head of judicial conference, Chief Justice makes policy recommendations as a legal reform, with respect to legal reform, reform of court procedures and advocates for the federal courts. What, if you were confirmed, would be your agenda, your plans, or your policy objectives to advance in connection with your head, with your role as the head of judicial conference? Well, um, I'm familiar with how the Judicial Conference operates uh, from, for at least part of its role. I've been on the uh, Advisory Committee on Appellate Rules. I was there as a lawyer and I was kept on as a judge. In fact, um, I was slated to be the chairman of that committee starting in o October. So I understand the role in promoting reform of rules uh, that apply in the federal courts, both the appellate rules, the civil rules, criminal rules, and 
bankruptcy rules and, and evidence rules, different committees there. And I'm familiar with the process. They go through the advisory committee, uh, a, a broader committee about rules in general, then they're submitted to the judicial conference for consideration. And it's a very uh, uh, exhaustive process, but I think also a very responsive one. Particular problems are identified in practice by practitioners, by judges. Um, they're submitted to the committees, they review them, they come up with proposals. It's a very important part of the uh, functioning of the federal system and it affects all the levels, uh, not just the Supreme Court of course, but the courts of appeals and the trial courts. Other issues of concern, obviously uh, pressing issues, concerns with respect to security in light of different developments, those are addressed at the judicial conference. Any need for legislative action that the courts feel is appropriate. I have to tell you that if I were to be confirmed as an initial matter, I think my primary posture is going to be one of listening uh, because there's obviously much I have to learn about matters of concern to different judges, different courts around the country. And that's the good thing about the judicial conference, of course, they bring in judges from around the country um, uh, to make sure that you get a national perspective on what needs to be done and you're not just focused on issues here in Washington or, or anywhere else. But, um, it's an area where I think I will have to listen a lot at the outset before being presumptuous enough to have a particular agenda. I thank you, Judge Roberts. I thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, uh, Senator Cole. Senator DeWine. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Judge, good afternoon. Good afternoon. You know, Judge, our Constitution created the federal courts with limited powers. In fact, Article 3 of the Constitution only gives the federal courts the power to decide cases and controversies. This case and controversy requirement means that federal courts will only hear real lawsuits involving real parties with real injuries. We've talked about this uh, in the last several days. This has led to the development of a number of different rules about when people can bring lawsuits in federal court and when they cannot. One of these rules, as you well know, is the principle of standing. You talked about this in 1993 in a law review article you wrote in the Duke Law Journal. You said the following, I'm going to quote briefly from this. The legitimacy of an unelected, life-tenured judiciary in our democratic republic is bolstered by the constitutional limitation of that judiciary's power in Article 3 to actual cases and controversies. You went on later to state the following. The Article 3 standing requirement ensures that the court is carrying out its function of deciding a case for controversy rather than fulfilling the executive's responsibility of taking care that the laws be faithfully executed. End of quote. Judge, could you elaborate on these statements today and maybe explain briefly what the doctrine of standing is and why that doctrine is really so important to our constitutional system? Well, um, Senator, your, your question really brings, ties together a few themes we've already touched on. I, I don't remember it was you or someone else who referenced Justice White's description of his obligation and what it was, and his answer was to decide cases. That was, that was me. And um, the uh, basis for the institution of judicial review, as explained by Chief Justice John Marshall in Marbury versus Madison, is similarly grounded on the obligation to decide cases and controversies. Because if you look at the Constitution, it doesn't say in Article 3 that the judicial branch is established in order to tell us all what the Constitution means. 
it says that the judicial branch is established to decide cases and controversies arising under this constitution and the laws. Um, and that is the basis for the authority to interpret the constitution. As Marshall explained, we have to decide a case. If the argument is that it's inconsistent with the Constitution, we have to decide that. Therefore, we have that authority, and I believe that's consistent with the intent of the, of the framers. But it does mean, and this is the point I was trying to make in that uh, small little law review comment, um, that judges should be very careful to make sure they've got a real case or controversy before them because that is the sole basis for the legitimacy of them acting in the manner they do in a democratic republic. They're not accountable to the people. As judges, they have the obligation to decide cases according to the rule of law. So first, make sure you've got a real case. And a real case is not simply, you know, I'm interested in this area, I don't like what the government's doing, or I don't like this law, and so I'm going to go to court. What the standing doctrine requires is that you actually be injured by what the government is doing, injured by uh, Congress's action. Now, the injury doesn't have to be economic. Uh, the Supreme Court has explained in cases uh, like Sierra Club versus Morton, it can be aesthetic, it can be environmental, uh, it can cover a wide range of injuries. But you do have to show some injury that separates you from the general public. So you're just not voicing a gripe. You're trying to get a case decided. That's the importance of the uh, standing doctrine. I appreciate the explanation, Judge. Um, let me ask you a more personal question. Uh, last time you appeared before our committee, uh, you were a lawyer in, in private practice. Uh, since that time, you've spent approximately two years on the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. New experience for even an experienced uh, practitioner like you. What surprised you about the last two years of judging? Well, um, if anything. Well, I, I think I had the biggest surprise um, on the first day uh, that I heard cases. Um, obviously, it's opening day and first day in my career, so prepared as good as as well as I could. Um, and uh, the arguments were great. Uh, and went into the conference room, and I had my notes and all the books. It's just the judges, you know, just the three judges. We bring the record in. We're surrounded by the U.S. reports, by our Court of Appeals reports, by the United States Code that you folks have written. Um, and I was ready, and I, I'm sitting there, and I remember the chief judge, who by tradition sits on a new judge's first day, and he was there, and another judge, and um, I waited a while, and I looked, and they were still waiting. I waited a while longer, and they were still waiting, and Finally, the chief judge uh, advised me that the tradition was that the junior judge goes first at these discussions. Um, and so I was kind of put on the, the, the spot right off the bat. Um, uh, and part of what that conference was like and throughout uh, really has, I, I don't know if I'd say a surprise, but it's been illuminating to me. Um, the judges really do roll up their sleeves and try to find the right answer. Uh, it's just the judges. Um, but as we say, well, we think this case is controlled by the, the Smith case, we get out the Smith case. We open it up and we look at it, we're reading over each other's shoulders and see exactly what it says. If somebody says, well, but in this case, under the record, there was no evidence about this, or there was no objection raised about that. Well, you get out the record and you look, and there at page you know, 223, you point to it and say, well, here's where the objection was raised. And the judges are very open. It's, it's, a, it's a, uh, a very encouraging part of the process from my point of view. Uh, nobody goes in there with set views. 
um, they want the benefit of the collegial process, the benefit of each other's views, and you have to be able to substantiate your position. There's no place for rhetoric. Uh, people are pointing to the law. Um, and I found that a very uh, encouraging part of the process, what goes on in the conference room, which was, of course, a part of the process that I hadn't participated in before. That's something that we don't see either. Right. Um, no way of seeing it. Right. And, and, and the uh, positive part of that process to me was that nobody was invested in anything other than getting the right result. Um, and they're prepared to be convinced uh, contrary to initial impressions. And I was as well. It's, it's, uh, uh, I found a very encouraging part of the process. First, let me ask you, uh, moving to the administrative law issue, if I could. Uh, as you know, in the 18th and 19th centuries, we really did not have uh, governmental agencies that have such a profound influence, uh, for better or worse, on the lives of Americans today, daily lives of Americans. Uh, today, administrative agencies set workplace safety rules, establish environmental regulations, lay down traffic uh, safety standards, just to name a few things. Uh, but as far as I know, there's no uh, specific article in the Constitution dedicated to the administrative state that we live in today. In your view, what is there in the text or history of the Constitution that supports the growth of this administrative state that we live in? Uh, is the growth of the administrative state uh, an example of the Constitution being amended simply out of necessity, or is the administrative state consistent with the Constitution as drafted by our, our founding fathers? How do we how do we get to where we are from a constitutional point of view? Well, uh, you know, we all, of course, begin in, in high school civics with the notion of three branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial, and we study that, and then uh, only occasionally do people look at the real world and see, well, what it, what is this agency? What is that? Is that legislative, or is that judicial, or is that executive? And, of course, the, the answer is, well, it's a little bit of each. It's exercising power delegated uh, by Congress. Um, it's executing it in a particular way. It's issuing regulations that have the force and effect of law, and qu quite often it's adjudicating particular disputes. Um, the activities of the administrative agencies are, of course, uh, the bulk of what uh, judges on the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit uh, do, uh, and the principles of administrative law that have uh, recognized the legitimacy of these agencies and sought to ensure that their uh, exercise of authority is consistent with constitutional provisions by basically, I mean, I know the issue can seem arcane to many people, but the, the fundamentals of administrative law really go back to the basic principles of justice. Is someone being given an opportunity to be heard? Is someone being treated fairly? Is someone who's making a decision doing it for a rational reason or an arbitrary reason. These are the same basic principles that have uh, animated uh, the common law system since the, the, the time of uh, Lord Cook, and they, they're being applied here as well. And the objection is often, this agency made a decision without adequately hearing our concerns, or this agency made an adjudicatory decision without hearing the record evidence, or they did not explain. That's the basic requirement of administrative law. Explain your decision. That's the limitation on arbitrariness. And the agency didn't explain why it's doing this. The notion that even in these arcane areas, our legal system insists upon the observance of these basic requirements of 
I, I don't want to use it, say due process as a technical term, but that's the, uh, the principle that is being applied. Uh, that goes a long way to uh, explaining how these agencies have been accepted into the constitutional system because they've been required under principles of administrative law to comply with these basic precepts of procedural regularity. Judge, let me turn to uh, the area of antitrust, a matter that's uh, very important uh, for the businesses and consumers of this country. Uh, for over 100 years, our antitrust laws have helped consumers by ensuring that our economy is competitive and, and vibrant. Uh, our antitrust laws are the oldest in the world, and uh, many uh, and people, including me, think they're the best in the world. Uh, in fact, I'm proud to say that John Sherman, Republican senator from my own home state of Ohio, uh, wrote the first antitrust law back in 1890. Uh, over the past uh, 20 years, we've achieved a great deal of consensus, I think, about how the antitrust laws should be enforced, Democrat and Republican administrations. Uh, as the chair of this uh, committee, subcommittee on antitrust, competition, policy, and consumer rights, I've worked very closely with Senator Cole, who asked you some questions about antitrust. I think we've worked in a bipartisan uh, way to ensure that consumers and competition are protected. It's a simple goal, but it's not so always easy to achieve or put into practice. For example, recently the rise and expansion of the Internet and the technological explosion of the so-called new economy have led to a marketplace that's changing faster and more often than we have really ever experienced before. Judge, what challenges do you think the courts face in trying to square our old antitrust laws as they're currently written with new business strategies in the high technology markets? And do you think that the laws, uh, these laws give courts enough guidance to deal with these new economy issues? Well, that was, that was really the basic issue that um, I faced in the, the Microsoft case before the D.C. Circuit on Bonk. There was a lot of uh, argument, academic commentary back and forth, the idea this is a whole new area. You can't apply the old principles. They don't work in this context. You need to do something different. Um, the so-called new paradigm and, and all that. And um, I, I, at least the argument that uh, I tried to make on behalf of the states were, was that the, the basic principles are the same. Um, the Sherman Act uh, uh, was, as many have said, you know, a charter of economic freedom and that those basic principles do have to be applied regardless of changes in the economics uh, of the underlying businesses uh, or the structure of the, the markets. Obviously, it requires a great deal of uh, sensitivity on the part of the judges, and I, 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 it's a real challenge for the lawyers sometimes to be able to understand the economics, to be able to explain them to the judges, um, and judges appreciate that. Um, but I, my basic instinct, and it's nothing more than that, uh, is that uh, the principles are there, um, and the issue is simply application in a new context. Good. Great. Thank you. Judge, just one final comment. Um, yesterday, Senator Grassley asked you whether you think that there is, and I quote, any room in constitutional interpretation for the judge's own values or beliefs. Uh, in response, you said, and I quote, no, I don't think there is. Sometimes it's hard to give meaning to a constitutional term in a particular case. But you don't look to your own values and beliefs. 
You look outside yourself to other sources. End of quote. You continued by saying that, and I quote, judges wear black robes because it doesn't matter who they are as individuals. That's not going to shape their decision. It's their understanding of the law that will shape their decision. End of quote. Now, Judge, I, I know what you meant by that answer. Um, judges should not impose their own preferences from the bench. In fact, I said pretty much the same thing in, in, in my opening statement on Monday. But, Judge, putting on a black robe does not mean that a judge should lose his character. You, sir, have a perfect resume and certainly an outstanding professional career. But a Supreme Court justice is more than just impeccable academic credentials and impressive accomplishments. President Bush nominated John Roberts the man. America has gotten to know John Roberts the man. And I'm quite sure that the Senate is in fact going to confirm John Roberts the man. Over the past several months we've examined your life, met with you in private, and now question you about your beliefs. Throughout this time your honesty, your integrity, your wisdom, your judgment, and dare I say, yes, your values have shown through. I would just say, sir, please don't check any of that at the door when you walk into the Supreme Court. By becoming John Roberts the Chief Justice, don't ever forget to be John Roberts the man. I think this country needs you to remember how you got here and who you met along the way. We need you to bring to the court your compassion and your understanding for the lives of others who haven't been as successful as you have been. We need you to bring to the court your strong commitment to equal justice for all. And we need you to always remember that your decisions will make a real difference in the lives of real people. When you put on that black robe and assume your spot on the Supreme Court, you will surely bring with you your heart and your soul. The values you learned from your parents and others that you learned as you grew up in the wide open fields of your youth. Those values are strong, they are true. The President saw them when he nominated you and we have certainly seen them this week. I must say, sir, they must never leave you. Justice Felix Frankfurter gave this same advice to his colleagues in 1949. There comes a point, Justice Frankfurter wrote, where this court should not be ignorant as judges of what we know as men. Great justices are more than just legal automatons legal technicians. They're more than just that. And though they lose their individuality when they put on a black robe, great justices never forget who they are. I wish you well. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Senator. Thank you very much, Senator DeWine. Senator Feinstein. Thank you very much, um, Mr. Chairman. Um,
Judge, uh, I subscribe to much of what Senator DeWine said. Um, I want to tell you what I think, perhaps a little differently and uh, personally. Senator Graham last night pointed out that um, Justice Scalia was confirmed by 98 votes of this body. And I thought then, and I think now, how different the days were in 1986. Um, there's so much water under the dam since then. The nation is divided. It's polarized. That's about 50-50. Um, we're at war. Uh, executive authority is very much on people's minds. Uh, the law as it relates to war, the Geneva Conventions, the Conventions Against Torture, all of these things very much on everyone's minds. Um, we've seen in the last 10 years 193 five to four decisions of the court, which suggests that on major questions, the court is also very divided. And so in comes this young justice. I was one on our side that voted for you for the DC court. I did so because there were so many testimonials about what a fine lawyer you are. Uh, what a fine human being you are. And I voted for you. But there's more in this vote. Senator DeWine just spoke about the man as opposed to the legal automaton. Um, yesterday morning, you spoke, I thought, eloquently in answering Senator Specter's questions um, on Roe. Um, you discussed stare decisive, stare decisis as fully as I have ever heard it discussed. I'm not a lawyer. I learned a lot from listening to you. Um, you discussed the right to privacy. Uh, you were very full and forward speaking. And then after lunch, it was as if you shut down and became very cautious. So my first question, did anybody caution you? between the morning and the afternoon sessions? No, Senator, no. Um, Has anyone, um, when you were being interviewed for this position, ever asked your opinion on Roe? No. OK, that's good to know. Um, 1973, 2005, 32 years, over three generations of women have come really to feel that finally they have some autonomy over their body. And, you know, women are all different. Many of them are very pro-life. Many are pro-choice. People have different religious views, moral views. So it's this big, diverse cosmopolitan of women. But the growth has been enormous. And the ability of women to succeed um, I mean, I went into the workforce at the same time Sandra Day O'Connor did with a year's graduate work. The door was closed. It's now open, and women are so lucky. And it seems to me that the living constitution is that each person in this great country, man or woman, you know, rich or poor, white or black, whatever it might be, can really reach their full potential. And I guess what has begun to concern me a little bit is Judge Roberts, the legal automaton, as opposed to Judge Roberts, the man, 
because I've heard so many times, you know, I can't really say uh, because it may come before me. And yet I don't expect you to say what you would do with Roe one way or another. But I do expect to know a little bit more about how you feel and how you think as a man because you're a very young man to be Chief Justice. You could be Chief Justice for 40 years. That's a very long time. And because of the division, and there's also a lot of fear out there where this new court, now with potentially two new justices, is going to go, whether you've got the ability to bring that court together to end the five to four decisions, to see that big decisions are made so that they represent a much greater consensus. Um, and I'm trying to find out and see, are those qualities really there? Um, I was interested in a colloquy you had with Senator Biden on the end of life, and he used the word, he asked a number of legal questions, and then he says, okay, just talk to me as a father and tell me. Now, I've been through two end-of-life situations, one with my husband, one with my father, both suffering terrible cancers, a lot of pain, enormous debilitation. Um, let me ask this question this way. If you were in that situation with someone you deeply love and you saw the suffering, who would you want to listen to? Your doctor or the government telling you what to do? To me, it's that stark because I've been through it. Well, Senator, in that situation, um, obviously, you want to talk and take into account the, the views and the heartfelt concerns of the loved one that you're trying to help in that situation because you know uh, how they're viewing this. You know uh, what they mean when they're saying things like uh, what their, their wishes are and their concerns are. Um, and of course, consulting with their physician. But it seems to me that in that situation, you do want to uh, understand and, and make sure that you appreciate the views of the loved one. And only you can do it because... That wasn't my question. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying to see your feelings as a man. I'm not asking you for a legal view. Well, I don't... I wasn't trying to give a legal view. My point was that obviously you look to the views of the person involved. And if it's a, uh, a loved one, you are the one who is in a position to make sure that you understand their views and can help them communicate those. How would you feel if you were in that position? Uh, an end-of-life situation and suffering? You know, I do think it's one of those things that it's hard to uh, conceptualize until you're there. I, I, I really would be hesitant to say, this is what I would definitely want done, or that's what I would definitely want done. You do need to confront that and appreciate all of the different concerns and impulses and considerations. And every situation is different. Yes. And uh, I... It's one of those things I think it's difficult to put yourself in that position and saying, well, with any degree of confidence, if I were suffering um, and confronting the end of life, this is what I would want to do or that is what I would want to do. I just, you can theorize it and try to come up with your views or how you would confront. That's right. All I'm saying is you wouldn't want the government telling you what to do. 
Well, uh, I, I'm happy to say that as a that general matter. There should matter, be a basic right true. of privacy. Well, that's getting into a legal question, okay, and you don't want. I won't want go there. I won't go there. Let me go somewhere else. Um, Commerce Clause, the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, Lopez, which began a chain of about thirty-six cases, striking down major pieces of legislation. Um, it's not easy to get a bill passed here. I mean, there are hearings, there are discussions, there are markups. Uh, there's one house, there's another house, there's a president. It goes through most of the time. Scrub pretty good before it gets to the president. Um, Gun-free schools, struck down in 1995. Uh, An impermissible use of a commerce clause. 96, Moses Lake, Washington, shooting in a school. 97, Bethel, Alaska, principal and one student killed. 97, Pearl, Mississippi, two students killed and seven wounded by a 16-year-old. 1997, West Paducah, three students killed, five wounded. Uh, Stamps, Arkansas, two students wounded. Uh, Jonesboro, 98, four students, one teacher killed, 10 others wounded outside West Side Middle School. Edinburgh, Pennsylvania, one teacher killed, two students, and on and on and on. An impermissible use of the Commerce Clause to prohibit possession of a weapon in schools. Now, at what point does crime influence commerce? Oh, I think it does, and one of the things that's important to understand about the, the Lopez decision is the court analyzed it, and again, I'm not taking a position on whether it was correctly right, decided right, or not, right. but as the court analyzed it, one of the things about the act was that it did not have uh, what's known as a jurisdictional requirement. It didn't have a requirement that the firearm be transported in interstate commerce. Um, a uh, requirement that I would think it would be easy to meet in most cases uh, because gun... But the firearm is transported in an interstate commerce. Maybe not when that student had it, but to get to the student, the firearm has been transported in my, interstate commerce. My point is that the, the fix in Lopez, all that the court was saying was missing in there, or what was different about Lopez than many of the other cases, was that lack of a jurisdictional requirement. And if the act had been, as I understand the court's analysis, the act had required that, uh, which I think, again, it's fairly easy to show in almost every case. As you say, these guns are transported in interstate commerce. Um, then that would have been within the Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. I think it was an unusual feature of the legislation that it didn't have that requirement, as so many laws do, as you know, it often says, you know, in, in interstate commerce. And that's, at least as I understand the Lopez decision, what made it unusual. That's very helpful. You might get it back again someday with that fix. Um, let me turn to something else that Senator Leahy asked a number of questions on, um, and that's the Constitution and executive power. Um, I'm looking for the section, but the Constitution very clearly says that any treaty is treated as the supreme law of the land, right? And that no state 
or official can abrogate it. Right. Um, which gives it the total weight of law. Can a president then decide not to follow a treaty? Uh, as a general matter, uh, the answer is no. The the uh, treaty power, as long as it's ratified according to the requirements in the Constitution by two-thirds of the Senate, you're perfectly correct. It is, uh, under the Supremacy Clause, the supreme law of the land. Now, I don't know if there are particular arguments about executive authority in that area with which I'm not uh, familiar, um, and I don't mean to state categorically, but my general understanding is that treaties that are ratified, and of course we have treaties that aren't ratified, and executive agreements that aren't submitted for ratification and so on, but a treaty that's ratified by the Senate under the Supremacy Clause is part of the supreme law of the land. Now, So the conventions against torture and the Geneva Conventions would apply? Yes. Now there are questions, of course, that arise under those and have arisen under those about interpreting the conventions and how they apply in particular cases to uh, uh, non-parties to the convention and so on. And as you know, those cases have been coming up and are being litigated. But uh, that that's an issue of what the convention means in a particular case, not whether, as a general matter, a treaty is, is binding. Let me take you to the morning, yesterday morning, in stare decisis. Um, because you specifically discussed when you're asked about Roe and Casey precedent, specifically, as we said, workability, reliance, pragmatic considerations, changed facts or circumstances, um, and whether the underlying legal or constitutional doctrine would still be valid. Are there any other factors that you think should be considered? Well, the court um, has been somewhat inconsistent on some other factors. They, uh, for example, talk about, in some cases, the length of a, a precedent, um, uh, the idea that the longer it's been on the books, the more uh, people have conformed their conduct to it. In other cases, they've suggested that's not such an important consideration. In uh, Payne versus Tennessee, the case that it noted how closely divided the court was in the prior case is a factor. But in other cases, the court has said that's not a major consideration. So I, I put those factors uh, on the table simply because in some cases the court looks to them and others it doesn't. But I think the ones I mentioned yesterday are ones that apply in every case, um, uh, including the ex settled expectations, the workability, whether the doctrinal bases of a decision have been uh, eroded. Yesterday, in answering uh, Senator Specter, on this very point, when you referred to Payne v. Tennessee, you did point out there were other considerations that come into play, and they're laid out again in Dickerson and in other cases, Payne v. Tennessee, Agostini, mm -hmm. and a variety of decisions where the court has explained when it will revisit a precedent and when it will not. Yes. What do you think when it should and should not? Well, I do think you do have to look at those criteria. And the ones that I pull from those various cases um, are, first of all, the basic principle uh, that it's not enough that you think the decision was wrongly decided. That's not enough to justify revisiting it. Otherwise, there'd be no role for precedent, no role for stare decisis. Um, 
second of all, one basis for reconsidering it is the issue of workability. If a precedent has turned out not to provide workable rules, if uh, courts get different results in the similar cases because the... Or if another case, like Casey, finds an, that Roe is workable. Well, again, that's a different, that, that is a precedent of its own right. that obviously okay. uh, would be looked at under principles of stare decisis. The issue of the erosion of precedent, if you have a decision that's based on three different cases and two of them have been overruled, maybe that's a basis that justifies revisiting the prior precedent. The issue of settled expectations, the court has explained, uh, you look at the extent to which people have conformed their conduct to the rule and have developed settled expectations in connection with it. Perhaps the uh, discussion earlier we had about the Dickerson case is a good example of that where the, the Chief Justice just thought Miranda was wrongly decided but uh, explained that it had become part of the established rules of police conduct and he was going to respect those uh, expectations. Now yesterday you said this, I agree with the Griswold Court's conclusion that marital privacy extends to contraception and availability of that. The court since Griswold has grounded the privacy right discussed in that case in the liberty interest protected under the due process clause. Do you think that right of privacy that you're talking about there extends to single people as well as married people? But the courts held that in, in the Eisenstadt case, which came shortly after Griswold, largely under principles of, of equal protection. And I don't have any quarrel with that conclusion in Eisenstadt. So, okay. Do you think that that same right extends beyond family choices then about a child's education? Well, that's where it actually got started uh, 80 years ago. In the earlier, early, earliest cases, Meyer and Pierce involved questions about how to raise children, whether you could teach them a foreign language, whether you could send them to uh, a, a private school. Um, and those decisions are really what started that body of law. I have another question I could ask, but you won't answer it, unless... Give it a try, Diane. Well, <laughs> does it cover the right of a woman to decide whether to continue her pregnancy? Well, Senator, as I've explained, that yeah, is an area that's... Yeah, have to come before you, and you got right. That message was well conveyed. Um, could I ask you a couple, of, uh, one question, I think I'll have time, in Acre v. the Republic of Iraq. Uh, this was the case where 17 U.S. prisoners, they were our people, uh, suffered severe beating, starvation, mock executions, dark and unsanitary living conditions, etc. during the first Gulf War and they sued the government of Iraq, the Iraqi intelligence services and Saddam Hussein for their brutal and inhumane treatment. The veterans won their case in district court in July of 03. They were awarded $959 million in damages. After the judgment, the Justice Department intervened in the suit to contest the district court's jurisdiction. The specific issue involved a statutory interpretation of the Emergency Wartime Supplemental Appropriations Act passed in 2003. Justice argued that the statute gave the president the authority to change Iraq's designation as a state sponsor of terror and thereby relieve it after the fact 
of its responsibilities for prior acts of terror. You wrote a concurring opinion in favor of overturning the district court's judgment. Although you agreed with the other two judges on the panel that the judgment should be reversed, you alone adopted the Department of Justice's argument that the statute granted the president total power to absolve Iraq of liability. You reached this conclusion while acknowledging that the question of statutory interpretation is close. Can I ask my question? Yes, let me finish your question. Do you believe that when, as in ACRI, there's a close question of interpretation of a statute touching upon a foreign policy, that the executive deserves total deference? Oh, no, uh, Senator, uh, whether the question is close or not, I don't think there's any situation uh, where a court concludes that the executive deserves total deference, and that was not the basis of my decision. The judges were unanimous uh, that the uh, veterans were not entitled to relief. The panel was chosen from a point, happened to be appointees of three different presidents. Uh, the view was unanimous that they were not entitled to relief. The other two judges concluded there was no cause of action available to them. I concluded that there was no jurisdiction and wrote separately. The recognition that it was a close question is also reflected in the view of the other two judges in addressing my concern. They acknowledged that it was a close question and I agreed with that. Uh, but you did have legislation that said that the president can determine that these laws do, do not apply if he makes a determination under the criteria set forth in the statute. And he had done that, and my conclusion that that extended to the provision that otherwise would have allowed suit. The other two judges disagreed. They thought there was jurisdiction, but then concluded there was no right of action. So the end result of both of our, our position was the same. But it was not a question of deference. It was a question of interpreting the legal authority and consequences of an act that this body had passed and the president's finding under that. Um, when it comes to interpreting questions of law, I go back to the Marbury versus Madison. That is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial branch. We don't defer to the executive. We don't defer to the legislature in making that final decision about what the law is. Get confirmed, maybe we'll defer to the legislative a little bit. Thank we, you. We defer, Thank you, just, to, just to clarify, we certainly defer in the standards of review that make sure that we're not intringing. But the final decision about what's constitutional or not uh, rests with the judicial branch. The policy judgments, we certainly defer to the legislature. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Feinstein. Senator Sessions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for your leadership as we move forward uh, um, expeditiously, I think, today, and uh, I think in a helpful way. I think the hearings have been very good, and, and Judge Roberts, I, I salute you for your excellent manner and your forthrightness and, and professionalism as you answer these questions. You know, I hope we are moving away, um, Senator Feinstein, from divisiveness. So we've got a, um, in some ways, we do have a divided country. And, but in other ways, I think we have the potential to move together. And I frankly believe that one thing that causes divisiveness and, and frustration and angst is when a Supreme Court were to render an opinion that really is more a political or social policy decision rather than a legal decision. And when they say it amounts to the Constitution, uh, the, 
a constitutional provision, then that Supreme Court opinion can only be changed by two-thirds of the both houses and three-fourths of the state. Do you, do you understand that danger, Judge Roberts, uh, in opinions, and uh, is that perhaps one reason you think a judge should show modesty? Well, it's part of what I mean when I say that a certain humility should characterize the judicial function. Judges need to appreciate that the legitimacy of their action uh, is confined to interpreting the law and not making it. And if they exceed that function and start making the law, I, I do think that raises legitimate concerns about uh, the legitimacy of their authority to do that. Well, I would observe that the American people are beginning to believe that is occurring, and I think it does threaten the legitimacy of the court uh, in a way that all of us who love the law should be concerned. And I do love the law, and I'm a big critic of the courts uh, on these kind of activist cases, but I have practiced full-time before federal judges, and as I said earlier, I believe day after day justice is done. You have said that in your, uh, before your court, you're impressed with the objectivity and fairness that the judges bring. Is the ideal of uh, blindfolded justice a neutral umpire? Is that a romantic, naive ideal, or is that something that you believe we can and, and should strive to achieve in America? Well, I, I do know that there are um, sophisticated uh, academic theorists, uh, people who spend a lot more time theorizing in this area than I do and a lot more a lot smarter than I am addressing these issues who some of whom conclude that in particular cases it's difficult to do it's difficult to avoid making the law while you're interpreting it and and they kind of throw up their hands and suggest that we shouldn't even try therefore and I I don't agree with that I think as a practical matter as a pragmatic matter judges every day know the difference between interpreting the law and making the law Every day, judges put aside their personal views and beliefs and apply the law, whether the result is one they would agree with as a legislator or not agree with. The question is what the law is, not what they think it should be. Um, I've seen that on the Court of Appeals. Uh, I've seen that as a practicing lawyer before the court. Um, that is the ideal. Um, uh, I'm sure judges, I'm sure justices don't always achieve it in every case uh, because it's a human endeavor and error is going to affect any, in hu any human endeavor. Uh, but that is the ideal and I think good judges working hard uh, can not only achieve it but also achieve it together in a collegial way and benefit from the insight and views of each other. Well, I thank you for that, and I, I would share those views, and um, I absolutely believe the strength of our nation is our good legal system. We've talked about the Commerce Clause, and there's been a lot of criticism of some of the cases. I think there have only been two significant uh, Commerce Clause cases maybe in the last 40 years, uh, Lopez and Morrison's, uh, Senator Feinstein, and you had a nice exchange about Lopez. I would certainly agree with your analysis. Uh, had the uh, Congress placed in there a requirement that the firearm had been traveled in interstate commerce, I believe that statute would have been upheld. We could pass it again with that simple requirement, and virtually every state, virtually every firearm will have traveled in interstate commerce. Uh, a few states have manufacturers. When I was a federal prosecutor, I prosecuted a lot of those cases. As a young prosecutor, I, I was sort of an expert at it in the, in the 70s, and and I proved sometimes that the interstate commerce by simply putting an agent on the saying there was no gun manufacturer in Alabama 
or it said made in Italy on it. I remember got that affirmed one time uh, as a proof beyond a reasonable doubt that it was not made in Alabama. Um, so Lopez, I believe, is a good decision. Uh, also, with regard to crime, I would note that uh, we've always had that nexus with interstate commerce. Uh, as a federal prosecutor, it's not a prosecution for theft. It's prosecution for interstate transportation of stolen property. That's the federal crime. Theft is prosecuted only by the state courts, unless it's from a theft from an interstate shipment. That's a federal crime. Uh, uh, it's not a stealing an automobile. It's interstate transportation of a stolen motor, motor vehicle. ITSMV is the federal crime. Uh, the Hobbs Act, the Extortion Act, to use against politicians, you have to have an interstate nexus. And I've had cases where bribery was proven, but we were not able to prosecute it federally because it did not have an interstate nexus. RICO, even arson cases have to have it uh, there. And uh, so I, I just want to make sure that if, let me ask you this, in, in general, wouldn't you agree that if someone in Pennsylvania picks up a rock and murders their neighbor, that uh, is a crime unreachable uh, by federal prosecution under traditional interpretations of um, Commerce Clause and, and the reach of the federal government. Well, again, barring special circumstances of the sort you were talking about, that's generally something addressed by state authorities. So we need to get this thing straight. We have some people complain we're federalizing too many crimes and then complain that uh, we, we're striking down some that go too far. States should prosecute these cases locally and effectively and, uh, and uh, should do that at guns, schools and guns and that kind of thing. And in the um, Violence Against Women Act, it was a Commerce Clause case uh, where a, um, a, um, a woman was uh, raped and then sued the uh, uh, people who attacked her, assaulted her and raped her. Uh, she wanted to sue in federal court under the Violence Against Women's Act. And what the court held there was, as I read it, that the there was a that uh, it, it limited the the court limited Congress's power to provide for civil damages, money damages. Uh, she could sue that rapist in state court, but not for money damages in federal court. Is that the holding of that? That's case? my understanding. What the court held in the the Morrison case? Yes. Uh, and I don't think it's an utterly extreme position. It certainly did not gut the uh, Violence Against Women Act. It has a whole, so many more provisions than just that. If the action had uh, uh, been against a private business, could the damages have been uh, rendered in that case? I'm not sure I know the answer to that, Senator. I'll take the um, follow-up on the Garrett case that several people have mentioned involved the University of Alabama in a lawsuit against uh, the state institution uh, claiming a violation of the Disabilities Act. Uh, the state defended on the grounds that uh, you could sue the state of Alabama for back pay. You could sue the state of Alabama to get your job back. You could sue the state of Alabama and get an injunction against the state uh, to not discriminate again in the future, but under the sovereign immunity doctrine that protects a state from lawsuits, you couldn't sue them for money damages. 
No, Senator Cornyn is attorney general of his state, and attorney generals like Attorney General now Judge Bill Pryor, who defended Alabama, uh, uh, raise that defense. And I don't think it's a bogus defense. Uh, I think it's a legitimate concern. Um, Judge, do you recall uh, where the doctrine that's so famous in the law that the power to sue is the power to destroy? Do you remember where that came from in our legal history? Uh, I remember tax opinions talking about it, but uh, uh, the power to tax being the power to destroy. But uh, I think the doctrine uh, has been applied to the states that we attorney generals are, are familiar with it under the uh, sovereign immunity that the states have. If you're empowered to sue the state of Alabama in federal court, uh, then you have virtually the power to destroy that state financially um, if there's no real limit on it. And so we've always provided, and the states have provided, a sovereign immunity that the states are only allowed themselves to be sued under certain circumstances, and you cannot uh, just sue them unnecessarily. I know uh, Senator Mark Pryor, our Democratic colleague, um, signed on the brief for the state of Alabama in the Garrett case, uh, taking this position, and the Supreme Court ruled with it. So uh, I also would note that it did not in any way destroy the uh, Disabilities Act. It applied to only state employees only make up about 3.7% of the employees in the nation that might be covered by that. So I think... Uh, I think there's some, been some healthy trends in reestablishing that there's some limit to the reach of the Commerce Clause. Wouldn't, would not you agree? Well, the, the interesting thing in the, uh, the court's most recent decision is the medical marijuana decision in the Raich case. And uh, the court there looked at the Lopez and Morrison decisions and tried to put them in context and said, because uh, the argument there was based on Lopez and Morrison, saying this is beyond Congress's power. And the court said those are only two of our cases, and they need to be put in the broad sweep of Commerce Clause precedents for over 200 years. Yes, there are two cases, and it had been, I think, 65, 70 years since the court had focused on limitation of, uh, under the Commerce Clause and concluded that it was beyond Congress's power. Uh, but... The Raich case concluded this was within Congress's power. They said, don't. It's not as if Lopez and Morrison are setting, junking all that came before. They just need to be considered in the broad context. And of course, there's decision after decision, going back to Gibbons against Ogden, uh, one of Chief Justice John Marshall's early opinions about uh, the scope of Congress's power and the recognition under the constitutional scheme that it is a broad grant of power and the recognition that this body has the authority to determine when uh, uh, issues affecting interstate commerce merit a legislative response at the uh, federal level. I well, think I that's... I think you're... Just um, go on to another study, but I think you're correct. These are some difficult areas and the court need to give a lot of attention to, but some recognition that there are limits to federal reach is, I think, legitimate for a court. Um, Judge, are you aware of the salary that you'll be paid and you become, if you're so In fortunate? In a big way, yes. Sure. Uh, and I suppose you were when you were affirmed to the uh, uh, Court of Appeals. Yes. Well, you're not going to be back next week asking for a pay raise, are you? 
Not next week, no. <laughs> Chief was pretty always over here knocking on our door about pay raises, but you know, we have a deficit in our country. And um, you paid the same, I guess the chief may be paid more than senators, but uh, for the most part, judges are paid what members of Congress are paid. And I frankly am dubious that we should give ourselves big pay raises when we can't balance the budget. I also chair the uh, courts subcommittee, courts and administration. And as chief, you have a serious responsibility with regard to managing and providing guidance to the Congress on the needs of the court system. Uh, I know that, I'm sure that you will do that uh, with great uh, uh, skill and determination, but uh, let me ask you, uh, will you also seek to manage that court system, and I hesitate, but I will use the word bureaucracy at times, uh, effectively and efficiently and keep it to be keep it a lean and effective uh, management team and and maintain uh, the uh, as tight a budget as you can maintain well uh, if I am confirmed senator the answer is is yes I'm aware that there is for example the administrative office and they provide valuable services to judges around the country um, as a consumer of their services for the past two years. I have certainly particular views about where I think they're effective and helpful to judges in other areas where, like any bureaucracy, where I think they can, can do better. Um, it is an area where my first uh, uh, priority is going to be to listen uh, because I'm sure there are many considerations of which I'm not aware uh, that are very important uh, for uh, the Chief Justice to take into account. And, and after listening, I'll, I'll, I'll try to make the best decisions I can about administering that system. Well, there are a lot of problems. Our judges are not happy with the General Services Administration, and sometimes GSA is not happy with the judges, and sometimes judges overreach um, and uh, want to be treated awfully specially. And um, so I, I think you have a challenge uh, there. I would look forward to working with you uh, if you'll help us make sure that your court system is lean and efficient and uh, productive, we'll try to make sure that you have sufficient resources uh, to do those jobs. Um, uh, one more thing and I'd just like to inquire about, and that deals with um, stare decisis, the deference you give to a prior decision of the Supreme Court. And you mentioned a number of factors, and I recognize those uh, as valid and worthy of great consideration. But it almost strikes me that it's a bit circular. In other words, the court is creating a wall around its opinions to try to avoid uh, seeing them overruled. Uh, isn't it true that your first oath is to enforce the Constitution as God gives you the ability to understand it, and that uh, uh, sometimes uh, uh, decisions have to be reversed if they are uh, contrary to uh, a fair and just reading of the Constitution. Yes, Senator. It, it, the oath we take is to uphold the Constitution and laws of the United States. Um, uh, that, that's true. And the way judges go about that is within a system of precedent uh, and consistent with rules of uh, of stare decisis. No judge starts the day by opening a blank slate and said, what should the Constitution mean today? You operate within those systems of precedence. That's the, the best way that we judges have determined 
to interpret the Constitution and laws uh, consistent with principles of stare decisis. Judge, I'll just conclude with um, noting that uh, I remember uh, when the um, court in the Ninth Circuit ruled at striking down the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, the then Majority Leader Tom Daschle came to the floor, as now Majority Leader Harry Reid did at the same afternoon, and they uh, uh, criticized the opinion and uh, criticized the Ninth Circuit um, and expressed concern about activism in that circuit, which I have done uh, often myself. But I responded that um, my concern was not so much with the circuit but with the confusing number of opinions from the Supreme Court and that I had no doubt that there was Supreme Court authority that would justify the uh, Ninth Circuit rendering the ruling that they did. And I say that because we've just received word today that a judge in San Francisco uh, has upheld, uh, 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 has ruled that the pledge is referenced to one nation under God uh, violates the Constitution and should be stricken down. So that case is going to be winding its way forward. I'm not going to ask you to comment on it because it will obviously come before you. But will you tell us whether or not you are concerned about the inconsistencies of these opinions and will you work to try to establish uh, a body of law in the Supreme Court that recommend, rec recognizes the free exercise rights uh, of American citizens in regard to religion and to avoid a state establishment of a religion? Well, uh, we talked about this in the committee uh, hearings on a couple of uh, occasions, um, and I think everyone would agree that the religion jurisprudence under the First Amendment, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, um, uh, it, it could be clearer. Um, uh, the Ten Commandments cases are the, the example right at hand. You have two decisions of the Supreme Court. Only one justice thinks both are right. Um, um, that is an area in which I think the court can redouble its efforts to try to come to some consistency in its, in its approach. Now, it obviously is an area that cases t depend in a very significant way on the particular facts. And any time that's the case, the differences may be explained by the facts. You do have the two provisions as your question recognized, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. And uh, as I've said before, I think that both of those are animated by the principle uh, that the framers intended the rights of full citizenship to be available to all citizens without regard to their religious belief or lack of religious belief. That, I think, is the underlying principle, um, and hopefully the court's precedence over the years will continue to give life to that ideal. Well, thank you, Judge Roberts. You have, uh, by your testimony, validated the high opinions that so many have of you. I'm confident you would make a great Chief Justice. Senator. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Senator Sessions. Uh, Senator Feingold. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Judge, let me uh, start off by taking a couple of new topics. Um, in September 1985, when you were in the White House Counsel's Office, you recommended deleting the following line uh, from the presidential briefing materials. Quote, as far as our best scientists have been able to determine, the AIDS virus is not transmitted through casual or routine contact, unquote. You said at the time that the conclusion was in dispute. We now know, of course, that the line is completely accurate, but I would say we also knew that then. 
The Center for Disease Control guidelines issued the month before you wanted to delete that line said the following, quote, casual person-to-person -person contact as would occur among school children appears to pose no risk, unquote. Major news organizations had reported the CDC's conclusion. In fact, the, the CDC had said as early as 1982 that it was unlikely that HIV uh, could be spread through casual contact. I'm sorry, as early as when? As 19... 82, that it was unlikely that HIV could be spread through casual contact. Why did, why did you recommend um, that that line be deleted? Well, it, for the reason I gave in the memorandum, this was the, a statement by the president, and I just wanted to, didn't want the president giving out medical advice if it was a subject of some uncertainty. I obviously was not a, a medical expert, and you said the CDC had issued a report a month before, well, uh, uh, earlier in your commentary, I don't know what the 1982 issue was, but um, I, I just thought it was, it's, it's purely a matter of caution and prudence to have the president make a pronouncement on it. You have to remember this was at the very beginning uh, of the uh, AIDS uh, uh, coming into public consciousness, and I, I was just concerned that the president not be giving out medical statements if people weren't absolutely sure that it was correct. So Let me follow on that a little bit. It certainly was an early time and also a critical time. I'm wondering what you did to check or have someone check oh. on, on these facts. I mean, you must have known that, that the issue was so important the president was saying something like this that it could have given a great reassurance to people all over the country as well as helping children infected uh, with the AIDS virus to live happier and more ni normal lives to know that this was the medical conclusion. So I'm just wondering well, why and, you wouldn't and check it out. I mean, I guess, I, the, the, the flip side of that, Senator, of course, is if it turned out to be wrong, um, it, it could have been disastrous to have the president prom uh, announcing because the president wasn't a medical expert either. And I'm sure my suggestion would have caused the people uh, drafting the president's speech to go back and if they thought they were convinced and they were sure then that's what would have gone in there. It was uh, just a question of concern. I wanted to make sure that uh, the, the, they were a hundred percent confident that what the president was going to be saying about a medical issue uh, was they had complete confidence in it. I don't know actually whether they took it out or left it in, but at least it caused I them to I don't want to focus. belabor it, but I, I think that was a great opportunity for presidential leadership and reassurance and would just respectfully disagree with, with your judgment there. Well, uh, my judgment, just so I could, well, it, it wasn't my medical judgment. The, 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 the impact of my suggestion was obviously to cause the people who wanted that in there to go back and make sure they were sure that they wanted the President of the United States issuing a medical statement. Um, I, I think it was pretty certain at that time what the, what the medical view was as indicated by, medical, by the medical community of our own government, but I'll leave it at that. It, do you believe that the Congress has the power under the Constitution to prohibit discrimination against gays and lesbians in employment? Um, I don't know if that's an issue that's going to come before the courts. I don't know if Congress has taken that uh, step yet. Uh, um, and until it does, I think that's an issue um, that, that I have to maintain some uh, uh, silence on. I, I think uh, personally, uh, I believe that everybody should be treated with dignity uh, uh, in this in this area uh, and respect uh, the legal question of Congress's authority to address that. Though is one that could come before the courts, and so I. Can you imagine an argument that would be contrary to 
Well, that you? I, I don't know what arguments people would make. I just know that I shouldn't be expressing an opinion on an issue that should, could come before the court. Let's go to something else then. Um, I'd like to hear your views about the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. This is an amendment where there is a real shortage of jurisprudence. You mentioned the Third Amendment where there's even less jurisprudence, but the Second Amendment's close. So I think you can uh, maybe help us understand your approach to interpreting the Constitution by saying a bit about it. The Second Amendment raises in interesting questions about a constitutional interpretation. I read the Second Amendment as providing an individual right to, to keep and bear arms as opposed to only a collective right. Individual Americans have a constitutional right to own and use guns, and there are a number of actions that legislatures uh, should not take, in my view, to restrict gun ownership. The modern Supreme Court has only heard one case interpreting the Second Amendment. That case is U.S. versus Miller. It was heard in 1939. And the court indicated that it saw the right uh, to bear arms as a collective right. In a second case, in U.S. versus Emerson, the court denied cert and let stand a lower court opinion that upheld a statute banning gun possession uh, by individuals subject to a restraining order under, uh, against a Second Amendment challenge. The appeals court viewed the right to bear arms as an individual right. The Supreme Court uh, declined to review the appeals court decision. So what is your view of the Second Amendment? Do you support one or the other of the uh, views of what, what, the, what was intended by that amendment? Yeah. Well, I mean, you're, you're, you're quite right that there is a dispute among the circuit courts. It's really a conflict among the circuits. The Fifth Circuit, I think it was in the Emerson case, uh, if I'm remembering it correctly, uh, agreed that, with what, what I understand to be your view, that this protects an individual right. Uh, but they went on to say that the right was not infringed in that case. They upheld the regulation there. Uh, the Ninth Circuit has taken a different view. I, I, I don't remember the name of the case now, but a very recent case from the Ninth Circuit has taken the opposite view, that it protects only a collective right, as they said. In other words, it's only the right of a militia to possess arms and not an individual right. Particularly since you have this conflict, cert was denied in the Emerson case. I, I'm not sure it's been sought in the other one or will be. Uh, that's the sort of issue that's likely to come before the Supreme Court when you have conflicting views. Um, I know the Miller case sidestepped that issue. An argument was made back in 1939 that this uh, provides only a collective right, and the court didn't address that. They said instead that the firearm at issue there, uh, I think it was a sawed-off shotgun, is not the type of weapon protected uh, under the militia aspect of the Second Amendment. So people try to read the tea leaves about Miller and what would come out on this issue, but that, that's still very much an open issue. Well, I understand that, that a case could come before you. Uh, I'm wondering if you would anticipate that in such a case that a serious question would be which interpretation is correct. Well, anytime you have two different courts of appeals taking opposite positions, I think you have to regard that as a, a serious question. That's not expressing a view one way or the other. It's just saying, I know the Ninth Circuit thinks it's only a collective right. I know the Fifth Circuit thinks it's an individual right. And I know the job of the Supreme Court is to resolve circuit conflicts. So I do think that issue is one that's likely to come before the court. I'd like to revisit the... Uh Hamdi issue. Um, I asked you which of the four opinions in the case of Hamdi v. Rumsfeld best approximates your view on the executive's power to designate enemy combatants, and you refused to answer that question because the issue might return to the court. And I want to oppress you a bit on that. In Hamdi, there were four different opinions, and by the way, I checked it because you mentioned Youngstown, and all four opinions cited the Youngstown sheet and tube versus Sawyer case. Both Justice Thomas's dissent and Justice Ginsburg and Souter concurring cited Justice Jackson's opinion in the Youngstown case. So, and they came to completely different conclusions. So, so your answer that you would apply that principle doesn't help me very much in understanding your view of this. 
we know where all eight other members of the court stand on these opinions. They, in their opinions, they wrote, either wrote or joined one of them, yet all eight of them will hear the next case that raises similar issues. No one is suggesting that their independence or impartiality in the next case has been compromised. Now, Mr. Hamdi, of course, has left the country, so the precise facts of his case will never return to the court. Of course, if a member of the court expressed a view outside of the court on a specific case that was headed the court, that might be cause for recusal, as Justice Scalia recognized when he recused himself from the Pledge of Allegiance case a few terms ago after discussing it in a speech. But obviously, Justice Scalia can participate in the next case involving the questions at issue in Hamdi, even though we know exactly what he thinks about that decision. So I guess I want to know, why are you different? I'm not asking for a commitment on a particular case. I recognize that your views might change once you're on the court and hear the arguments and discuss the issue with your colleagues, but why shouldn't the public have some idea of where you stand today on these crucial questions concerning the power of the government to jail them without charge or access to counsel in a time of war? They, they know a great deal about how each of the other justices approach these issues. Why is your situation different? Well, because each of the other eight justices came to their views in those cases through the judicial process. They confronted that issue with an open mind. They read the briefs presented by the arguments, by, by the parties and the arguments the parties presented. They researched the precedents as a judge. They heard the argument in the case. They sat in the conference room, just the nine of them, and, uh, on the court. Uh, and debated the issues and came to their conclusions as part of the judicial process. You're now asking me for my opinion outside of that process, not after hearing the arguments, not after reading the briefs, not after participating with the other judges as part of the collegial process, not after sitting in the conference room and discussing with them their views, being open to their considered views of the case, not after going through the process of writing an opinion, which I have found from personal experience and from observation uh, often leads to a change in views, the process of the opinion writing. You can't, the opinion turns out it doesn't write. You have to change the result. The process, the discipline of writing uh, helps lead you to the right result. So what would you're asking me for, I'm sorry, you're asking me for my views, just, you know, right here without going through any of that process. What would be the harm, Judge, if we got your views at this point and then that process caused you to come to a different conclusion, as it appropriately should. What would be the harm? Well, the harm would be uh, affection, affecting the appearance of uh, uh, impartiality in the administration of justice. The people who would be arguing in that future case should not look at me and say, well, there's somebody who under oath testified that I should lose this case, because this is his view that he testified to. Um, uh, they're entitled to have someone consider their case through the whole process I've just described. Uh, not testifying under oath in response to a question at a confirmation hearing. I think that is the difference between the views expressed in the prior precedent by other justices in the judicial process and why, as has been the view of all of those justices, every one of those justices who participated in that case took the same view with respect to questions concerning cases that might come before them as I'm taking here. I understand your, your view. I, I think it's, it's narrow. Um, I mean, I had the experience of having one of my bills go before the Supreme Court, and I know I didn't have, as we say in Wisconsin, a snowball's chance with a couple of the justices because of what how they had ruled previously, but I, I didn't think that made the process in any way tainted. That I knew that they simply wouldn't, weren't going to agree with the statute, but I recognize your limitations here. Let me um, ask you about something else, the, the Hamdan matter. Yesterday you refused to answer any questions regarding your conduct in the Hamdan versus Rumsfeld case. 
But today you answered questions from Senator Coburn regarding this matter. So I want to follow up in order to make sure the record is complete. You interviewed with the Attorney General of the United States concerning a possible opening on the Supreme Court on April 1, 2005. Is that correct? Yes. The, the, the specifics of the details I've re discussed in the uh, response to the committee's questionnaire. And that was six days before the oral argument in the Hamden case. Isn't that right? I don't remember the exact date of it. I know it was shortly before that, yeah. You had further interviews on May 3rd concerning a possible appointment to the court with numerous White House officials, including Carl Rove, the Vice President, and the White House Counsel before the decision in the Hamden case was released. Isn't that correct? The, uh, the decision was June 15th. Uh, the question here is just did you have further interviews on May 3rd concerning a possible appointment to the May court? May 3rd, yes. Well, whatever, whatever was, I don't remember the exact dates, but whatever You had, you had in interviews the, with those individuals. In the Senate The record seems to indicate it was on May 3rd. You met again with Ms. Myers, the, Ms. Myers, the White House counsel, on May 23rd. Isn't that right? I, I'm relying on the, if, if that's what I said in the questionnaire, yes. I no don't have an independent you know, reason to doubt that those facts are correct. You never informed counsel in this case of these meetings, did you? I did not, no. Mr. Gonzalez's advice to the President concerning the Geneva Conventions was an issue in the case, isn't that right? Uh, I don't want to discuss anything about what's at issue in the case. The case is still pending um, and pending before the Supreme Court. Well, how about Court. this one? President Bush was named a defendant in the case, right? Yes. In his, in his official capacity. Um, the Honda decision was released on July 15th. Is it your testimony that no work on that decision took place after July 1? Uh, no, uh, I didn't. That was not my testimony. The opinions in the D.C. Circuit... Oh, you your testimony now that no work on that decision took place after July 1. Opinions in the D.C. Circuit are complete and circulated to the panel a week before they're released. Th that was my... The, the conclusion of when work was complete... Um, and again, I wasn't the author of the opinion. It mm -hmm. would have been a week before it was released. Did you read over the opinion of the concurrence after July 1? Was there any editing that took place after that date? I, I don't recall, Senator. And well, when was the issue of whether you should recuse yourselves from this case? When did that first come to your attention? Uh, I saw and um, was made aware of an article, I think it was an article, uh, uh, I don't remember when that took place, um, whenever uh, the article was published, and then I understand there was uh, legal opinions on the other side were requested by, uh, I believe, the chairman, um, and I know that those were, were published. You don't recall well. when this matter first came up and would think would be a, something you'd remember is when I don't remember, suggested you should have recused yourself. I don't remember the date of the... How about the approximate time? It was, I, I think it was sometime in, in July or... Chairman, um, so the record would be complete. I'd like to submit the article from Slate magazine by Professors Gillers, Luban, and Lubet in a letter sent to you responding to Professor Rotunda's criticism of their position. And I also want to submit an article uh, by these three law professors that was published in the Los Angeles Times on this topic. I don't want to take any more time on this, but I think these Without professors... will be made a part of the record. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I think these professors very convinc convincingly answer Professor Rotunda's views and point out that his analysis of the case law is not particularly persuasive. And I would urge any of my colleagues who really want to understand the issue with Judge Roberts' participation in the case, rather than just dismissing it because it, it's inconvenient, that they, they take a look at it and... and uh, and, and actually see what, what the issues were here. But uh, I, I do appreciate your answer to those questions. 
I will only be able to get to some of my questions on the next subject and hopefully the next round can continue. But Judge Roberts, as Senator Leahy mentioned earlier, when you came before the committee a couple of years ago, we discussed the fact that more than 100 people on death row have been exonerated and released. And in fact, I believe the number is now 121 people who we know were sentenced to die for crimes they did not commit. I want to follow up on the work that Senators Durbin and Leahy have done in discussing with you the Herrera case. I do differ with your characterization of the case. The Solicitor General brief that you signed presented the issue as whether the Constitution, quote, requires that a prisoner have the right to seek judicial review of a claim of newly discovered evidence, unquote. That is, the question was not how strong the evidence of innocence must be, which you seem to be suggesting earlier, but whether the Constitution requires that there be some avenue presenting evidence of innocence in federal court. Your brief argued that it does not. Now, that brief also, as you know, contained a footnote that I'm going to ask you to comment on. It said, quote, there is no reason to fear that there is a significant risk that an innocent person will be executed under the procedures that the states have in place. The direct review and collateral procedures that the federal government and the states have in place are more than ample to separate the guilty from the innocent. And yesterday you talked about the possible effect of DNA evidence on the legal framework in this type of case. In light of the many cases of innocent people ending up on death row that have come to light in the past decade, and aside from what was the ultimate issue at stake in that case, do you still agree with your statement from the government's Herrera brief? Well, that was the administration position at the time. Um, it was one that the Supreme Court agreed with. Six to three, I think, was the ruling. I know Justice O'Connor was in the majority. Um, uh, the uh, issue, and again, uh, there was obviously argument at the time in, in, uh, about what the issue really was in Herrera. And I thought it was quite inaccurate to view it as a c case involving the question of whether uh, actual innocence could be presented. Because there was, it was a claim of newly discovered evidence. And it was a claim that somebody who just died was actually the murderer. At the end of an exhaustive uh, appeals to the state system, exhaustive collateral review through the state system, exhaustive collateral review for the federal system, is there an obligation to decide at that point that uh, a new claim uh, that somebody else committed the crime? I'm just running out of time. I'm wondering if you just still stand by the statement, if you could just say yes or no. Well, that was the administration All position right. well, that was presented. Let me cut to the quick on it. I'd like to know whether you think there's a risk that innocent people may be sentenced to death in today's criminal justice system. And it, I must say, Judge, Supreme Court justices do have the power of life and death in these matters. Senator, I think there is, is always a risk in any enterprise that is a human enterprise like the legal system. Uh, obviously, the objective of the provision of the rights to a criminal defendant and trial, the provision of collateral review at the state level, the provision of collateral review at the federal level, the availability of, as, as you suggested, clemency, all of that is designed to ensure that the risk is as low as possible. There are issues that are going to be presented about the availability of DNA evidence, which may or may not help reduce the risk even further. Um, uh, there's always a risk. And obviously, when you're dealing with something like capital punishment, uh, uh, the risk is something that has to be taken extremely seriously at every stage of the process. As we talked about more than two years ago at our the prior hearing, I think the most effective way of minimizing that risk is to ensure that people facing that sanction have the best counsel available at every stage. As you know from looking at this problem, the issue that comes up are questions that weren't raised, that should have been raised if the person had a more capable lawyer. 
avenues that weren't pursued that should have been pursued if that lawyer had the resources. And those, that, that's where I think the risk of uh, uh, wrongful conviction uh, is going to be most effectively addressed, ensuring the availability of competent counsel at every stage of the proceeding. Thank you, Judge. <clears throat> thank you, Senator. Thank you, Senator Feingold. Uh, Senator Graham. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Judge Roberts, your intellectual stamina impresses me because you can't see this on television. It must be 150 degrees in here. <laughs> I just don't know how you're doing it, but I'm tremendously impressed. Um, Mr. Chairman, I would like permission to introduce into the record uh, some law professor's opinion that being interviewed for uh, the Supreme Court vacancy uh, when Judge Roberts was interviewed did not require him to recuse himself, and I'll do that. Without objection, they will be made a part of the record. But let's think about that in kind of political terms, and I know that's not really your job. If we took this to its logical conclusion, say I was president, I don't think that's going to happen, so you don't need to be overly worried about it, but you could pick someone to be Chief Justice from the court, people sitting on the court, is that correct? Yes. So if you had a judge you didn't particularly like, the best thing you could do is go talk to them about the job and they couldn't decide anything. Would that be the logical conclusion of this? I think that would be the logical conclusion of some of the Well, I'll remember that if I'm president. But uh, now I'm on record now, I don't think I should have the right to do that. That's part of the process. Um, some big themes here. Were you proud to work for Ronald Reagan? Very much, Senator, yes. During your time of working with Ronald Reagan, were you ever asked to take a legal position that you thought was unethical or not solid? No, Senator, I was not. We've talked about the Voting Rights Act. Propor proportionality test in the Reagan administration's view was changing the Voting Rights Act to create its own harm, is that correct? The, the concern that the Attorney General had uh, and, and the President was that uh, changing, the, changing Section 2 to the so-called effects test would cause courts to uh, adopt a proportionality requirement, uh, that if elected representatives were not elected in proportion to the racial composition in a particular jurisdiction, that there would be a violation shown that would have to be redressed. Do you think it would be fair to try to suggest that because you supported that position that you're somehow racially insensitive? Uh, no, uh, Senator, and I would resist the suggestion that I'm racially insensitive. I know why the phrase equal justice under law is carved in marble above the Supreme Court entrance. It is because uh, of the fundamental commitment uh, of the rule of law uh, to ensure equal justice for all people without regard to the race or ethnic background or gender. Uh, the courts are a place where people need to be able to go to secure a determination of their rights under the law in a totally unbiased way. That's a commitment uh, all judges make when they take a judicial oath. Knowing this will not end this line of inquiry, but at least trying to put my stamp on what I think we found from this long discussion, basically the Supreme Court decided in Section 2 that the intent test was constitutionally sound. Is that correct? That's what it was its determination in Mobile against Mobile. And Senator Kennedy disagreed because he wanted a different test. And I respect him. He is one of the great... Uh, first, he's not part of the Reagan Revolution. I think we all can agree with that, so I don't expect him to buy into it. But I respect him greatly for his 
passion about his causes. He took it upon himself to try to change the Supreme Court ruling, to go away from the um, intent test to the effects test. And he was able to reach a political compromise uh, with the administration. And I just want that to be part of the record. That to say that Ronald Reagan or Judge Roberts, by embracing a concept approved by the court, equates to that administration or this person being insensitive to uh, people of color in this country, I think is very unfair and off base. You said something yesterday that was very compelling to me. I asked you, could you express or articulate what you thought might be one of the big threats to the rule of law? And I believe you said, judges overstepping their boundaries, getting into the land of making the law, putting their social stamp on a cause rather than interpreting the law, because that could, over time, in the eyes of the public, undermine the confidence in the court. Is that a correct summary? Yes, Senator. Well, we have before us today, Judge Roberts, a legal opinion just issued, hot off the presses, that says the Establishment Clause of the Constitution apparently is violated if an American expresses, uh, recites the Pledge of Allegiance. You will be on the court, I hope, and you will use your best judgment on how to reconcile the Ninth Circuit opinion. And I'm not asking you to tell us how you might rule. I'm making a personal observation that this is an example, in my opinion, of where judges do not protect us from having the government impose religion upon us, but declare war on all things religious. And that is my personal view and opinion. That's why most Americans sometimes are dumbfounded about what's going on in the name of religion. No American wants the government to tell them how to worship, where to worship, or if to worship. But when we exercise our right to worship, it bothers me greatly that judges who are unelected confuse the concept between establishment and free exercise. And I will move on. I think it is one of the cases that is undermining the confidence in the judiciary. And I'm glad you're sensitive to that. The war on terror. In my past legal life, I've spent most of my legal career associated with the military. And I'm proud to be a military lawyer. I'm the only reservist in the Senate. I sit as an Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals judge. I handle the easy cases because I don't have a whole lot of time and I help where I can. But I understand, I think, very well what it means to abide by the judicial canons of ethics, not to tip your hand, not to compromise yourself, to get promoted or to get put on the court. Promoted in the military or to get put on the court, trying to please your boss, trying to please a senator. And my respect for you has gone up because you're unwilling to compromise your ethics. And I hope the Senate will understand that in the past, other people were not required to do so. Are you familiar with the Geneva Convention? Yes, Senator. Do you believe that the Geneva Convention as a body of law, that it has been good for America to be part of that convention? I do, yes. Why? Well, my understanding in general is it's an effort to bring civilized standards to uh, conduct of war, uh, generally 
uncivilized enterprise throughout history, an effort to bring some protection and regularity to prisoners of war in particular, um, and uh, I think uh, that's a, a very important uh, international effort. As Judge, uh, uh, Senator Kyle said, this will be the only time we'll actually get to talk. And I don't want to compromise your role as a judge, but I do want you to help me express some concepts here that America needs to be more understanding of. And I want to work with my Democratic friends to see if we can find some way to deal with this. We're dealing with an enemy that is not covered by the Geneva Convention. Al-Qaeda, by their very structure and nature, are not signatories to the Geneva Convention and are not covered under its dictates. An enemy combatant, are you familiar with that term in the law? Yes, Senator, I am. What would an enemy combatant be under American jurisprudence? Who would they be? Well, I, I, I really have to Fair think. Enough. Fair enough. Those cases are both pending, the ones right. that I've decided are pending before the Supreme Court, and those issues are likely to come before. Fair enough. Uh, the Geneva Convention doesn't cover al-Qaeda, but our president has said that anyone in our charge, terrorist or not, will be treated humanely. I applaud the president because in fighting the war on terror, we need not become our enemy. Our strength as a nation is believing in the rule of law, even for those of the even for the worst of those that we may encounter. I admire uh, Mr. Adams for representing the Redcoats. I cannot imagine how tough that must have been. But his willingness to take on the unpopular clause, cause in the name of the rule of law has made it stronger. When the president said that we will treat everyone humanely, even the worst of the worst, I think he's brought out the best in who we are. But we're in a war, Judge Roberts, where the Geneva Convention doesn't apply. And we have before the courts a line of cases dealing with the dilemma this country faces. When you capture an enemy combatant, non-citizen foreign terrorist, there's three things I think we must do. We must aggressively interrogate them without changing who we are. We must have the ability to keep them off the battlefield for a long period of time to protect our nation. And we must have a system to hold them accountable for some of the most horrible crimes imaginable. Justice Jackson was one of your favorite justices, is that correct? I think that's a fair description, yes. He has indicated in the Youngstown Steel case that the presidency or the executive branch is at its strongest when it has concurrence with the legislative branch. Is that a fair summary of what he said? Yes, he, he divided up the area basically into three parts. and considering the executive's uh, authority and said when it has the support of Congress, it's at its, its greatest. And obviously when it's in opposition to Congress, it's at its lowest ebb, as he put it. And he described the middle area in which it was somehow, sometimes difficult to tell whether Congress was supporting the action or not. This is me speaking, not you. Congress is AWOL, ladies and gentlemen, in the war on terror when it comes to detention, interrogation, and prosecution of enemy non-citizen combatants. Justice Scalia has written eloquently that Congress has the power to get involved in these issues, and Congress is silent. What is the case? Is it the Razul case where the Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision has given habeas corpus rights to non-citizen foreign terrorists? 
think that's correct, Senator, yes. That is an amazing departure from what we've been as a nation for 200 years. I have been to Guantanamo Bay twice. The people running the prison tell me that 185 of the detainees have lawyers in federal court. Justice Scalia says we've set up a situation where 94 different jurisdictions can hear habeas cases involving non-citizen foreign terrorists. The people running the jail says this process is undermining our ability to get good information. An habeas corpus petition hearing would it allow a defense attorney to call a military commander and to answer for how this person was captured? Um, I don't know, Senator, and I hesitate to opine on that without knowing. Well, the truth is that we've set up a situation where our military leaders and our military commanders and soldiers in the field can be called from all over the world, all over the country, to answer for why such person uh, is detained. We had a conversation in our office, my office. I haven't agreed to a third round yet. You said something to the effect, as Justice Scalia said in his uh, dissenting opinion, that this would be an area where the courts would welcome some congressional involvement. And right now, we have the executive branch carrying the load totally by themselves. We've got several cases before the court dealing with detention policy, interrogation policy, and uh, prosecution policy. Do you believe that this is an area, if the Congress acted, as Justice Jackson said, that it would strengthen the hand of the executive in a legal situation? My observation when, during our meeting, Senator, was, was not a, an expression of legal determination. And it doesn't necessarily mean a view that Congress's action or involvement would be determinative or would even be uh, within the scope of legal authority, depending on what the issue and the arguments were. I do know that when you are in the, the middle area uh, where it's difficult to determine whether Congress is supporting the president's action or is opposed to the president's action, that the court often has to try to uh, read the tea leaves of related legislation. If you look at the Dames and Moore decision in coming out of the Iranian hostage crisis, what the court did in that case, applying the middle tier, uh, was look at a vast array of legislation. And it was a very difficult enterprise to try to figure out what Congress's view was. My point was simply that if we'd know what Congress's view was, it might make it easier to apply it in a particular case, and you wouldn't have to go through that process of trying to determine what position Congress was in if that turned out to be pertinent under the particular Je legal challenge. Thank you. Justice Scalia said in a very direct way, the courts are ill-equipped to deal with these issues. In the uh, Youngstown Steel case, Justice Jackson says, when the president acts pursuant to an express or implied authorization of Congress, his authority is at the maximum for it includes all that he possesses in his own right, plus all that Congress can delegate. A Caesar seizure executed by the president pursuant to an act of Congress would be supported by the strongest of presumptions and the widest latitude of judicial interpretation, and the burden of persuasion would rest heavily upon any who may attack. Do you agree with that? That, that was read from the Jackson opinion. I do. I agree with the basic proposition that 
the president's authority is at its greatest when he has the support of, of Congress. To my colleagues, I think it is imperative for this body to get involved in the war on terror when it comes to detaining, interrogating, and prosecuting enemy combatants who are not citizens. It is important that all three branches of government, in my opinion, uh, feel comfortable with the policies of this nation that will be stronger if the judicial branch, the legislative branch, and the executive branch are working together to come up with policies that will allow for aggressive interrogation, uh, appropriate detention, and uh, serious prosecution in a way that's uh, within the values of our nation. So that is why I will be introducing legislation on all those topics, and I will not ask you any further what you may or may not do about the legislation if it ever gets to the floor of the Senate and passed. The Kelo case. Of all the things that have been decided, and I haven't been to my office since the recent case about the uh, pledge, so it may have trumped it, I have gotten more phone calls about the Kelo case than anything the Supreme Court has done lately. And for those who may be tuning in, the Kelo case basically said that the government can take your property, give it to someone else, another private person, because it could be used at a higher and best use and it might generate more taxes. I'm not going to ask you <laughs> to tell me how you decide the Kelo case, but I just want you to know, as Senator Kyle indicated, this is the only time you can hear from us, that my phone is ringing off the hook and that every legislature that I know of is going into session as quickly as they can to correct that. So I want to leave with you, and when you meet your new colleagues, please let them know that some of the things they do that we watch and that the courts are able to do their job because the public defers to the court and respects the court. But there is a limit. The Office of Chief Justice of the United States is different as you're the first among equals. What do you believe, as Chief Justice, you can bring to the table that you could not as just a normal member of the court? <coughs> well, um, if, if I am confirmed, I think one of the things that a Chief Justice should have as a top priority um, is to try to bring about a greater degree of coherence and consensus in the opinions of the court. Um, um, I know that has been was a priority of the last Chief Justice. I actually believe that is something that should be a matter of concern for all of the justices. But as the Chief, uh, with the responsibility for assigning uh, opinions. Um, I, I think he has a greater uh, scope for authority to exercise in that area and perhaps over time can develop greater uh, persuasive authority um, to make the point. And again, coming from the chief, it may be a point that other justices would receive, uh, be more receptive to than they might coming from one of their colleagues. That. Uh, we're not benefited by having six different opinions in a case, um, that we do need to take a step and think uh, uh, whether or not we really do feel strongly about a point when which your a justice is writing a separate concurrence which only he or she is uh, joining, or whether the majority opinion could be 
revised in a way that wouldn't affect anyone's commitment or uh, to the judicial oath to decide the cases as they see fit, but would allow more justices to join the majority. So the court speaks as a court. That is something that the priority should be, to speak as a court. So your goal as Chief Justice is to where you can and as often as you can to find consensus and unite the court. Is that true? I think the court should be as united behind an opinion of the court as it possibly can. Now, obviously, in many cases, it's not going to be possible. I applaud you because we're a divided nation. And the more united we can, be can become at any level of government, the stronger we will be. So I applaud you with that attitude, for that attitude. Thank you very much, Senator Graham. Senator Schumer. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Judge Roberts. It's nice to talk to you so early in the day. Um, Yesterday, you stated that uh, you, quote, agree with Griswold, with the Griswold Court's conclusion that marital privacy extends to contraception and the availability of that, unquote. And you noted that the Court's later decisions based the constitutional right to privacy on the liberty component of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. Now, Justice Thomas, at his confirmation hearing, answered in a way very similar to the way you did. During his confirmation hearing, here's what he said, quote, I believe the approach that Justice Harlan took in Griswold in determining the or assessing the right to privacy was an appropriate way to go, unquote. Now, we all know that Justice Harlan's approach located the right to privacy in the liberty interest of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. And Justice Thomas also said at his confirmation hearings along the same lines that he agreed with the court decision in Eisenstadt v. Baird, where the court held that single people have the same right to privacy as married people on the issue of procreation. However, since he's been confirmed on to the court, Justice Thomas has not applied the right to privacy to key protections. For instance, in Lawrence in 2003, he declared that there is no general right to privacy in the Constitution. Now, yesterday you said that, quote, liberty is not limited to freedom from physical restraint. It does cover areas, as you said, such as privacy. It's not only protected in procedural terms, but protected substantively as well. You said that you agreed that there's a right to, pro quote, there's a right to privacy to be found in the Liberty Clause of the 14th Amendment. So that seems directly to contradict Justice Thomas's view once he got on the court, uh, as I outlined in Lawrence. I assume that you disagree with Tom Justice Thomas's view that there is no general right to privacy, as he stated in Lawrence. Well, I think that question depends, obviously, on the, on the modifier and what you mean by general. Um, I, I noted in going over the nomination hearings of Justice Breyer, uh, he also uh, said that the privacy interest is within the, the, the protected as part of the liberty protected by the due process clause. I right. think that is the, just the general approach. Now, the, the Let's talk about Justice Thomas. He said there's no general right of privacy. You seem to say yesterday, you didn't seem to say, you said that there was a right to privacy. Let's forget that Justice Thomas said it. You would disagree that there is no general right to privacy in well, the Constitution? I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the phrase general, right, because I don't know what that means. I don't know if by saying general, they're trying to describe the particular scope to the right to privacy or not. I think there is a right to privacy protected as part of the liberty uh, guaranteed in the Due Process Clause. A substantive right to privacy? It's protected substantively, yes. Your reading of... Uh, 
Justice Thomas's case that he, in Lawrence that he does not believe in that? No, uh, I think his statement obviously focuses on general, and his conclusion in that case was that the right to privacy protected under the due process clause that you noted he uh, acknowledged at his hearings did not extend to include the activity at issue in Lawrence. Well, this is obviously very important uh, because uh, Justice Thomas seemed to be more full in his view of privacy at his confirmation hearing than later, be, than later when he was on the court, at least if you read his decisions. And you are not willing to say that your view is different than the view Justice Thomas stated in Lawrence. I'm not willing to state a particular view on the Lawrence decision, and that's consistent with the approach that I've taken. And uh, let me ask you a broader question. Do you disagree with Justice Thomas's interpretation of the right to privacy in any decided case? Well, uh, Senator, I'm not going to comment on whether I think particular cases were correctly decided or not in I areas. Didn't ask that. Well, I don't know which cases you're talking about. But any, any one you want. Well, that would be commenting on whether that decision was correctly decided or not. If I'm agreeing or disagreeing with one of the justices' views in that case, that would be commenting on whether that view was correct or not. If it was in a dissent, it would be disagreeing. If it was in the majority, it would be agreeing. And because those are in areas that could come before the court, uh, like every other nominee to come before this committee who's on the court today, I think it's inappropriate to comment on, on the correctness or incorrectness of those decisions in areas that could come before the court. So you're not, you don't have to answer this, it's obvious you will not state where you disagree with Justice Thomas and it could well be that uh, what he said at his hearing and you said at your hearing might lead to, might lead you to rule in the same way on privacy? Well, uh, again, I, I, my view on privacy is as I've expressed, that there is a right to privacy protected as part of the liberty under the due process. Would you say there's a general right to privacy? I don't know what general means. Substantive right to privacy. Well, substantive, yes. I, I have said that, that the protection is, extends to substantive protection. But when you say general, I don't know what that means. I don't didn't, know if that means didn't Justice, excuse me. Didn't Justice Thomas disagree with the substantive right to privacy in Lawrence? His conclusion was that the liberty protected by the due process clause did not extend to that right, yes. Thank you. So it would seem to me you disagree with him. I think you just said it without saying it. No, Senator, you're asking me whether the right to privacy protected under the liberty clause extends to a particular right, the right at issue in Lawrence. Well, I, and I, I think what I'm asking you, is there a substantive right to privacy? I didn't apply it to a particular case. I have said there is a substantive yes. right to privacy. Now, and in Lawrence, Justice Thomas seemed to say there is no substantive right to privacy. No, uh, as I understand it, and again, his testimony as a nominee was that there was. What he said is the, the quote you read in Lawrence said there's no general right to privacy. Now, I don't know. But his holding was that there was no substantive right to privacy under the Liberty Clause. Wasn't it? Uh, wasn't that what he, wasn't that the whole thrust of his argument? No, I, I think, Senator, that his conclusion in Lawrence was that whatever right there was, it did not extend to the activity okay. that was at issue in Lawrence. Bottom line is you're unwilling to differentiate yourself from Justice Thomas's view in Lawrence. 
Well, it's consistent with the approach I've taken that I don't think it's appropriate to protect, as necessary to protect the independence and integrity of the court to comment on whether that decision was correctly decided or not. And that is consistent with the approach I, every member I of the court I just didn't ask taken. you that. I asked you if you would, I asked you if you disagreed uh, with his particular holding. And, but let me ask you a few other questions here, because I think you're cutting back a little on what you said yesterday, at least if you look at the whole picture here and your unwillingness to uh, disagree with Justice Thomas. But let me ask you this about judges in general. You sit on a court, correct? Okay. And sometimes you dissent. And that's routine, not just for you, but for every judge. It's rare on our court. I'm happy yes, to say. Yes, it is. It is. That is true. I've noticed that. But uh, it happens in courts all the time. Okay. And in doing so, the dissenting judge is criticizing the majority opinion, right? Disagreeing with it. And I take it this happens on the Supreme Court quite often. And in fact, there aren't that many unanimous Supreme Court cases on major cases these days. Well, actually, at one point, the statistics always showed that m more cases were unanimous than anything else. But there else. are a lot of dissenting judgments. There are judgments. a lot. And every justice on the Supreme Court has dissented in many cases, meaning they disagreed with the opinion of the court, right? And nothing is wrong with that. There's nothing improper, nothing unethical. Let's go to commentators. Non-judges are free to criticize and disagree with Supreme Court cases, correct? Yes. In speeches, law review articles. This is a healthy process, wouldn't you say? I agree with that, yes. And you did this occasionally when you were in private practice? Yes. Okay, nothing unseemly about that? No. Okay. And how about lawyers representing clients? Lawyers representing clients criticize cases in legal briefs all the time. That's what they do for a living. Yes. And that's part of being a good lawyer. And you've signed your name to briefs explicitly criticizing and disagreeing with Supreme Court decisions. On occasion, yes. Um, in Rust v. Sullivan, for example, your brief said that, quote, Roe was wrongly decided and should be overturned, unquote, right? Yes. Okay. But in this hearing room, you don't want to criticize or disagree with any decided cases. That seems strange to me. It seems strange, I think, to the American people that you can't talk about decided cases, past cases, not future cases, when you've been nominated to the most important job in the federal judiciary. You could do it when you worked in the White House. You could do it when you worked in the Justice Department. You could do it when you worked in private practice. You could do it when you gave speeches and lectures. As a sitting judge, you've done it until very recently. You could probably do it before you just walked into this hearing room, and if you're confirmed, you may be doing it for 30 years on the Supreme Court. But the only place in time that you cannot criticize any cases of the Supreme Court is in this hearing room, when it is more important than at any other time that the American people and we, the senators, understand your views. Why this room should be some kind of cone of silence is beyond me. The door outside this room doesn't say, check your views at the door. So your failure to answer questions is confounding me. You've done it in instance after instance after instance after instance. What is the difference between giving your views here in this hearing room 
and what judges do every day, what professors do every day, what lawyers do every day. In each case, they have to state their opinion. They have to do it as part of their job, if you will, writing a brief, rendering an opinion, writing an article. In each case, they're stating their views, which might bias them. You've done it. Yet, only here, you can't state your views. If the, if the argument, and by the way, there's a very good countervailing reason that you should state your views, because as the Founding Fathers so constructed, this is the one time you go before an elected body, before a lifetime appointment. And it seems to me this is something of an argument of convenience. Senator Specter said it well. He said, you'll answer as many questions as you have to to get confirmed. That may, be, that may be the actual fact, but it's not the right thing to do, in my judgment. And so please tell us, why is the bias, why is the fact that you've already stated an opinion any different when you sit in this room in terms of jeopardizing your future as a judge than it is when you're doing all these other things that you've done. And let me just remind you, I'm going to give you a chance to answer this, but I think it's bothering a lot of people in this room and out of this room. Justice Ginsburg, people who have sat in your very chair, just about every single justice, with one or two exceptions, has given their opinions of existing cases. Justice Ginsburg said on Roe v. Wade, my view is that if Roe had been less sweeping, people would have accepted it more readily. Do you think she was unable to keep an open mind in cases implicating Roe? Do you? Do you think she was unable to keep an open mind? Just ask me, answer me about her, not about what... Senator, I'll explain why she expressed her views on that particular issue. It was an explanation that she gave at the time, that she had written extensively on that subject, and she thought that her writings were fair game for uh, discussion. Uh, she took a different but view. She, excuse me, I just, because I want to... She would be expressing an opinion which might yield bias whether she wrote before or not. She did it over and over again. She praised Learned Hand's First Amendment decision in Mass's publication. I don't think she was biased to keep her mind open on courts in that line, as, as Joe Biden said in Moore versus City of Cleveland. She candidly, and I don't think she had writings on that one. She expressed the opinion, uh, the, the opinion has difficulties, and other justices have done it. Justice Breyer talked about U.S. v. Booker. Justice Powell about Miranda. Justice Souter about Miranda. Didn't bias him in the Dickerson case. Not all of these people had previously written. You can make a distinction to every single example I give. You can say, well, she wrote on that one. But when you add it all up, you are being less forthcoming. I know you're doing what you feel is right, but you're being less forthcoming with this committee than just about any other person who has come before us. You are so bright, and you know so much. But there's another aspect to this, which is letting us know what you think. And you've set up your own little construct. It's not really the Ginsburg precedent, or it isn't Canon 5, which you cited repeatedly at your uh, Court of Appeals hearing. 
And so, let me ask you this one question, and then you can answer it in general. Has there been any judge that you're aware of who's had to recuse himself or herself because of what they said at a confirmation hearing? Can you name for me a judge who you think was biased or not able to render justice because they gave their opinion at a confirmation hearing sitting at this table as you do? I think because the justices have followed the approach that I am following, um, and as I said, I've gone back and read every one of the transcripts for the justices, they have avoided commenting on whether they think decisions were correctly decided or not. If you look at what Justice Ginsburg said when she was asked whether she thought the Mayer and Harris cases were correctly decided, you will see she said, I'm not going to comment on that. She said, I know what the precedents are, I have no agenda to overrule them, and that's all I'm but going to say. She commented on many other cases as you well, went through with Senator Biden yesterday and as we've gone through a little bit here. She commented on many different cases, didn't she? My understanding... There were reasons, but she did comment on other cases, didn't she? My understanding of the cases she felt appropriate to comment on, as I've said, were the ones where she had already written on it. And she said, I think my writings are appropriate. There, there are no cases she commented on where she hadn't written? I thought she adhered to her view. Her view was no hints, no forecasts, no previews. That's exactly what she said. That's an exact quote from her hearing transcript. I, I, I have to say, sir, I disagree with you. I've looked at her testimony. She didn't comment on some cases and commented on others. If you look at how many she commented on and how many she didn't, it's a far different balance than you who have commented on Marbury, Brown, Griswold, and not much else. And each time, even when we talked yesterday about Wickard v. Filburn, and it's a 1942 case, it's at the root of a large, it's a trunk of a large tree of constitutional law. Uh, you were unwilling to comment, and of course you say it might come before the court, but that's a prediction. Some may, some not. Some may not. Maybe a Brown case would come before the court. Uh, maybe a Griswold case would come before the court, and if you had wanted to, you could have easily said those may come before the court and not answer those. It's sort of your own little way of doing it. I just have one more question here. The president, as I said, and this motivates some of us, he said he wants to nominate judges in the mold of Thomas and Scalia. I want to ask you, are you in the mold of Thomas and Scalia? The president said he wanted to nominate people that way. Well, Senator, I'll give the same answer um, I gave yesterday uh, to uh, Senator Graham when he asked if I would be in the mold of the Chief Justice. And the yes. answer is, I will be my own man on the Supreme Court. Let me, period. I appreciate that. Do you think they are activist judges? I, I'm not going to criticize uh, them with respect to any general description of that sort. Uh, I'm sure I, there are cases where I would agree with them, and there are cases where I would disagree with them, as with all of the justices. Okay. Now, by the way, I'll note, I don't think I have time here, but you did criticize in a memo back in when you were working in uh, Attorney General uh, Fred Fielding's office, uh, Brennan and Marshall as activist judges. Now, I don't think that was the official position of the Reagan administration, so it seemed to be your opinion. Um, can you tell me in 30 seconds so I can just ask one more question? How is it different not to want to 
characterize Justices Thomas and Scalia, but it was okay to just to characterize Justices uh, Marshall and Brennan as activists. Well, that that was a uh, it was a reflection of the views of the Attorney General at the time, and the view, and that was part of the. But it wasn't official position. Reagan policy. I don't think it was official policy. It was an expression that the Attorney General had made on various occasions. Let me let me just say, sir, in all due respect, and I respect your intelligence and your career and your family. This process is getting a little more absurd every time, every, the further we move. Um, you agree we should be finding out your philosophy and method of legal reasoning, modesty, stability, but when we try to find out what modesty and stability mean, what your philosophy means, we don't get any answers. It's as if I asked you what kind of movies you like. Tell me two or three good movies. And you say, I like movies with good acting. I like movies with good directing. I like movies with good cinema photography. And I, I ask you, no, give me an example of a good movie. You don't name one. I say, give me an example of a bad movie. You won't name one. And I ask you if you like Casablanca, and you respond by saying lots of people like Casablanca. <laughs> you tell me it's widely settled that Casablanca is one of the great movies. Senator Schumer, no. Senator Schumer, now that your time is over, are you asking him a question? Yes. I am saying, sir, I am making a plea here. I hope we're going to continue this for a while, that within the confines of what you think is appropriate and proper, you try to be a little more forthcoming with us in terms of trying to figure out what kind of justice you will become. We will now take a 15-minute break, uh, uh, reconvene at uh, 425. Uh, Mr. Chairman, could I address some of the... Oh, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Uh, I didn't. I didn't hear any questions, Judge Roberts. But you. Well, there were several here, along the way. Well, you, 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 you want to break anyway? You go right ahead. You are. I'll be very. You succinct. are privileged to comment. Um, this is coming out of his next round, if there is one. Oh well. Uh, <laughs> first, I guess there'll be. First, um, uh, Dr. Zhivago and North by Northwest. <laughs> but. Um, now, how about on the more important subject of what? <laughs> on the more important subject, let him, I guess. Let him finish his answer. You're out of time. Yeah. <laughs> the only, Not out of uh, movies. Uh, the only uh, point I would like to make, uh, because you raised the question, how is this different than justices who dissent and criticize, and how is this different than professors? And I think there are significant differences. The justice who files a dissent is issuing an opinion based upon his participation in the judicial process. He confronted the case with an open mind. He heard the arguments. He fully and fairly considered the briefs. He consulted with his colleagues. He went through the process of issuing an opinion. And in my experience, every one of those stages can cause you to change your view. The view you ask then of me, well, what do you think? Is it correct or not? Or how would you come out? That's not a result of that process. And that's why I shouldn't respond to those types of questions. Now, the professor, how is that different? Yep. That professor is not sitting here as a nominee before the court. And the great danger, of course, that I believe every one of the justices has been vigilant to safeguard against is that turning this into a bargaining process. It is not a process under which senators get to say, I want you to rule this way, this way, and this way. And if you tell me you'll rule this way, this way, and this way, I'll vote for you. 
That's not a bargaining process. Judges are not politicians. They cannot promise to do certain things in exchange for votes. And if you go back and look at the transcripts, Senator, I would just respectfully disagree. I think I have been more forthcoming than any of the other nominees. Other nominees have not been willing to tell you whether they thought Marbury versus Madison was correctly decided. They took a very strict approach. I have taken what I think is a more pragmatic approach and said, if I don't think that's likely to come before the court, I will comment on it. And, uh, you know, again, perhaps that's subject to criticism because it is difficult to draw the line sometimes. But I wanted to be able to share as much as I can with the committee in response to the concerns you and others have expressed, and so I have adopted that approach. 425, we're anxious to move ahead to try to conclude uh, your testimony, Judge Roberts, as uh, early as we can. I know you'll agree with that. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Sorry. Thank you for the accommodation. We will resume the hearings. We're just uh, a few minutes tardy because we just finished the vote. Uh, and we now turn to uh, Senator Grassley for his 20 minutes second round. Thank you. Once again, uh, compliment you on how you've handled yourself at these hearings. You've done very well. It's going to be very hard for people to cast an old vote against you. Judge Roberts, uh, do you believe that every citizen who meets the qualifications set forth in the Constitution and our laws should have the opportunity to cast a free and unfettered vote? And as a follow-up, will you uh, on the court fairly apply the Voting Rights Act? Well, I certainly agree that uh, every citizen who meets the qualifications not only has a right to vote, but should vote. I think it's a, a problem that we don't have more people uh, voting. And any issues that come before me under the Voting Rights Act, uh, I will confront those uh, uh, with an open mind and decide them after full and fair consideration of the arguments in light of the precedence of the court uh, and in light of a recognition of the uh, critical role that the right to vote is uh, plays as preservative of all other rights. Thank you. Uh, the Supreme Court has repeatedly stated that the legislative history of a particular bill is critical to interpretation of the statute. Well, a reminder that all of, of course, today's proceedings will re-air tonight, of the 9 p.m. Eastern, that's expanded to. Let's go back live now to the committee after an unexpectedly long break. Fifteen minutes turned into a little over an hour. Here's the chairman. We continue. We uh, found out as soon as we had completed the recess that a vote had been called, and the senators have been over voting, which counts for the slight hiatus here. Uh, but we're now going to proceed, uh, and it's uh, the turn of Senator Cornyn for a 20-minute round. And I'm sure, uh, Mr. Chairman, the, the judge just missed us terribly. Couldn't wait for us all to get back here. Glad we're back. He uh, may have missed us under the theory that the sooner we start, the sooner we end. But, uh, Thank you. <laughs> but that principle may not apply here. Uh, stare decisis would suggest that it does not. Senator Cornyn. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, judge Robertson, my observation is that you have been uh, completely bipartisan when it comes to refusing to answer questions either from this side of the aisle or that side of the aisle that you feel would compromise uh, your independence as a judge or violate your um, code of conduct as a judge. Um, I, I have to tell you though that there are people who uh, may be keeping score of how many 
questions you're answering propounded by this side and that side. And I guess one way to sort of run the score up would be to keep asking questions that you know you can't answer and thus to claim some uh, uh, grievance or advantage when it comes to uh, making that comparison. But I hope we don't, uh, I hope we don't do that. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit. Well, first of all, before we go there, um, I know one of the questions involved the code of judicial conduct and whether you were proscribed by that and uh, the differences between uh, what you have felt at liberty to testify to and Justice Ginsburg did. But I noticed that uh, in the commentary to the uh, to Canon 5, the model code of judicial conduct, the last sentence says this section applies to any statement made in the process of securing judicial office such as statements to commissions charged with judicial selection and tenure and legislative bodies confirming appointment. Uh, is that your recollection of, uh, of the code's scope? Yes, Senator. And I would ask um, unanimous consent that that be uh, made a part of the record. Of the Without objection, it will be made a part of the record. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. And I, I won't uh, go. I won't dwell on this anymore about the numbers of questions asked. But I, I know we're now up to about 66 questions that you've responded to on the role of a judge in your judicial philosophy. 48 on civil rights and discrimination. 44 on abortion and privacy. Uh, at, let me ask you this: If we keep asking the same question over and over and over again, but try to approach it from a slightly different way to get you to answer a question that you don't feel you can ethically answer, are you going to give us a different answer, or are no. you going to give us the same answer? I hope my answer would be the same, Senator. Well, I, I'm uh, I'm sure that's the case. Uh, we talked about uh, the code of judicial conduct and your ethical obligation. Uh, we've talked about the practical aspects of uh, being a judge and the, the importance, and I guess this is not just practical, it's really a constitutional duty that judges have um, to maintain judicial independence, even from the, uh, um, even from the legislative branch, by making commitments of performance in office uh, as a condition to your confirmation. But I want to also ask you what I would, I guess for lack of a better uh, phrase, uh, uh, practical uh, reasons uh, why it's hard, if not impossible, even if a judge wanted to, to be able to accurately predict uh, how you might decide a particular matter. I was interested to hear uh, Senator Biden early, earlier uh, ask you about right to die issues. and. Um, you uh, you said I can't answer the question in the abstract, and he said that's not abstract, that's real. And you said, well, Senator, as a legal matter, it is abstract because the question would be in any particular case, is there a law that applies that governs that decision? And that prompted me to think of, uh, in addition to, as I think uh, um, Senator Dewine asked you about, the case or controversy limitation in Article Three of the Constitution that limits the, uh, the, the manner in which you might reach a particular issue, so it requires a case or controversy. He talked about standing and the importance of litigants actually having a stake in the outcome, so they're willing to fight hard in the adversarial process. Could you explain um, 
for example, why the adversarial process uh, is so uh, important and it's important for judges to make sure that people have an actual stake in the outcome rather than, let's say, uh, doing a, well, I know Senator Brownback, Senator uh, Coburn, all of us get letters from constituents say, what is your position on the, uh, the uh, base realignment and closing commission? Uh, and why we just can't write judges' letters and ask what your opinion is, uh, just sort of for uh, an advisory capacity. Well, that actually goes back very far in our history, as you know, uh, to the early stages when uh, John Jay, I believe, is the first Chief Justice, was asked for uh, his opinion on a matter. And he made the determination that it would be inappropriate uh, to give that kind of advice. It was really one of the leading historical episodes that contributed to implementing the separation of powers. I think he appreciated that if he started just giving advice on legal questions that were of concern to the president that he would be acting more like an attorney general and it wouldn't be separated from the executive. And then he would be in a position of giving the president advice while at the same time ruling on the legality of his uh, conduct. And I think uh, the reason John Jay decided that was not appropriate for this, these new judges on the new Supreme Court to give advisory opinions is because he appreciated that they were in the judicial department, as the Constitution put it, uh, not in the executive department, or if the advice, uh, request for advice had come from the, the legislature. Um, it's an important part of the separation of powers that our courts don't give advisory opinions. You know, some state courts do. They have a different uh, system of separation of powers and in some state courts the Supreme Court will give an advisory opinion but the federal rule has always been that you have to have a constitutional case or controversy. And is that a constitutional limitation? It's in Article 3, yes. I mean it's not something you can take or leave? You know, uh, the requirement of an actual case or controversy is derived from the Constitution. There are some aspects of standing doctrine that are they say prudential, in other words, that it's up to the court whether to apply them or not. But the core requirement that the litigants have a stake in the, in the issue, a case or controversy, uh, is a constitutional requirement. Well, and getting back to Senator Biden's question about uh, right to die and how you would, what, what you believe or what your position would be uh, if that were to come before the court, it just occurred to me you'd have to determine uh, whether there was, in fact, a case or controversy, uh, whether there was actually a person that had standing, that is, with a concrete stake in the outcome that uh, brought the lawsuit so as to preserve that adversarial uh, process. It would, um, I imagine, uh, if you're sitting as an appellate judge, either in the circuit court or Supreme Court, you'd want to look at, see what the evidence is. Um, would it make, and maybe, for example, if it, uh, whether it would make any difference in a right-to-die case, whether someone had a living will or not, um, and what the evidence was uh, in the court below uh, before you could really sort of make a pronouncement from on high that, yes, right-to-die trumps everything. Well, it's hard to know whether it trumps something until you know what the other something is, and uh, that includes what the legislation might be. I've had many questions before this committee about the importance of deferring to the legislature um, uh, in areas in which Congress has given authority under the Constitution. Well, as a judge, before I'd propound the idea of 
uh, right that it doesn't matter what the uh, issue is on the other side, I'd like to know if a legislature has addressed that issue. Now, sometimes, as you know, legislatures can exceed their constitutional bounds, and there are rights under the Constitution that individuals have that trump efforts by the legislature to address those or infringe upon them. But you need to know what the issue is in terms of the conflict between an asserted right and an asserted power of the legislature. I don't think members of a legislative body would accept the principle that uh, you would decide a case like that without even knowing what the legislature had uh, enacted or what the issue was or why they had uh, decided that this was an appropriate area of legislation. That's not deciding the controversy. It's just saying we need to have the, the issue narrowed in a way that courts are familiar uh, with addressing. Well, and of course, uh, juries in many instances are the fact finder, and uh, their determination is uh, uh, usually binding on, uh, on not only the court uh, below, but also appellate courts reviewing that. And I guess uh, citizens would feel that they were engaged in a futile exercise uh, of serving on juries and, and listening to evidence and trying to decide um, disputed facts if uh, the judge on appeal was just going to say to, you know, let's throw that out the window. We don't really care because this is a result we want to reach in a particular case. Well, judges, when they sit down to decide a case, when the uh, cases come into the chambers, judges don't sit and decide, well, what do I think about issues under the Fourth Amendment or the Fifth Amendment or the Seventh Amendment. They want to know what the case is about, and that begins with knowing what the factual dispute is about and what the record is. Then they want to know what law applies in resolving that question, and they want to know what the arguments are. That's why we have briefs on one side and briefs on the other, and I'm sure you've had the same experience that I've had, which is that you find the, the opening brief can be very persuasive, then you move on to the second one and you see it in an entirely different light. And maybe your view of the case will change again as you consult with your colleagues on the bench or as you hear the oral argument. Uh, I know I spent a lot of time doing those briefs and arguments, and I certainly hope they had some impact on a case from time to time. Uh, and then when you sit down with the judges, all of these things, your view of a case is going to change in some way at every stage. And to say that it's the same thing when you sit down and ask an abstract question uh, as when you've been through the judicial process and reached a decision, including having to reduce it to writing. The requirement that judges write opinions is an important discipline on the decisional process. Because and those, those opinions are going to be submitted to the public, and everyone's going to be able to see your reasoning. And so it has to be coherent and reasonable and uh, something that can stand the glare of uh, publicity and the scrutiny of scholars and other judges. That's a very important discipline. It means it's, it's, it's quite a bit different than saying, well, what do you think about this and whatever opinion you might give. I'm also, uh, of course, intrigued by how poorly um, senators, presidents, and others who try to predict how a life-tenured judge or justice on the Supreme Court is likely to look at issues uh, next year, 10 years, 20 years down the road. And it just occurs to me that the, uh, uh, there's a long list of uh, examples where life tenure and the uh, lack of uh, electoral or political accountability has caused judges to uh, uh, change the way they perhaps have looked at things over time. And I guess how badly presidents have guessed uh, sometimes about uh, how a judge will 
uh, decide cases in the future. And I think, uh, you know, one of my favorite is uh, Teddy Roosevelt and Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, when he said, I could carve more backbone in a banana uh, than demonstrated by uh, this justice. He was pretty hot. Uh, so, uh, in addition to the ethical, the constitutional, the uh, uh, the practical limitations. It just seems to me that uh, we're engaged in a little bit of a futility here uh, because uh, when you're confirmed, and I expect that you will be confirmed, um, the, the designers of our Constitution expected and created a, a system where you would be uh, immunized or at least insulated, I should say, from political or other pressures. I know there were questions about, uh, I want to move quickly to um, uh, your participation in, uh, in a lawsuit, uh, the, uh, let me see, it was a Hamdi uh, case? Uh, Hamdin Hamd case. Hamdan was Hamdan. the one in the, I'm sorry, Hamdi was the one in the Supreme, Supreme Court. Court. Right. Sometimes I confuse those. We, it's a common source of confusion. And um, we've had uh, a little back and forth. I think uh, uh, Senator Feingold asked about the ethics of your participation. Uh, Senator Graham, I thought, made a very uh, good point in talking about if a president wanted to disqualify a uh, judge in a case, well, just call the judge up and tell him you're being considered for a, uh, a federal appointment, uh, which certainly can't um, be, be right. But um, do you know for a fact uh, that uh, Justice Breyer, when he was being considered about a possible nomination uh, to the Supreme Court, sat and decided seven cases while sitting on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Are you familiar with that statistic? Uh, no, I, I'm not, Senator. Okay. Well, I, our, my, uh, our research uh, reveals that that is, in fact, what happened. And so... Uh, if Justice Breyer could participate fully in his uh, in, in in the court's decision-making process while being considered by President Clinton for appointment to the uh, nomination uh, to the Supreme Court, it strikes me that we should not have a different standard. And I'm not asking you to comment on that because you said you're not familiar with Justice Breyer's, Breyer's record. But if that's true, and I believe it is, that he preside, he said on seven different cases involving the United States uh, government and the executive branch while he was being considered for the Supreme Court. We shouldn't hold John Roberts uh, to a different standard. Um, and that's, that's, that's my, my view. Uh, we've got about five minutes. Let me just ask you, just as a practical matter, um, I worry when I see that the Supreme Court's opinions are so fractured and divided uh, as you alluded to, I believe, on the uh, question of the Ten Commandments. Um, the only one that agreed with both decisions that the, the Ten Commandments could be displayed in Texas but not in Kentucky was uh, Justice Breyer. And um, there were ten opinions uh, in those two cases which led the uh, former Chief Justice uh, Rehnquist to quip, uh, well, that's more opinions than we have justices. Uh, ten opinions for nine justices in those in that case, uh, which decided the constitutionality of the um, Ten Commandments. Well, it strikes me that one of the goals uh, of the court ought to be of any court ought to be to write uh, decisions that can be read and understood 
uh, by a person uh, of reasonable intelligence. Uh, and frankly, uh, Judge, I have to tell you that lawyers struggle, no doubt uh, circuit court judges, trial court judges, uh, such as in the, the court you serve on now, struggle to try to figure out just what in the world the law actually is. And it breeds additional litigation, uh, a lot of money, a lot of, uh, lot of time uh, spent just litigating issues that the court um, could, if it had the will, uh, clearly decide. And in some ways, I think it leads some uh, observers to wonder whether the Supreme Court is um, firmly uh, grounded in the reality of uh, how their decisions will actually be read and understood and implemented, uh, either by lower courts or by litigants who are trying to figure out what is the law, so how can I conform my, my uh, behavior, and how can I make plans in a way that I can rely upon is, uh, is legal. Uh, I'd be interested in your observations. Well, um, Senator, I, I hope we haven't gotten to the point where um, Supreme Court's opinions are so abstruse that uh, the educated layperson can't pick them up and read them and understand them. Um, uh, you shouldn't have to be a lawyer to understand what the Supreme Court opinions mean. One of the reasons um, I've given uh, previously for admiring Justice Jackson is he was one of the best writers uh, uh, the court has ever had. And I, I think you didn't have to be a lawyer to pick up one of his opinions and understand exactly what his reasoning is and why he's saying that. And if he's citing and relying on precedents, he can cites them and explains them. Um, uh, they're not uh, written in jargon or legalese, uh, but an educated person who's uh, uh, life, after all, is being affected by these decisions, can pick them up and read them, and you don't have to hire a lawyer to tell you what it means. Um, uh, I hope we haven't gotten to a point where that's an uh, unattainable uh, uh, ideal. Um, now, I'm not suggesting that I've always lived up to that, and I'd hate to have somebody go back and look at my opinions and critique them under that uh, exacting standard, but I do think that's something that uh, it's worth shooting for, at least in most cases, that opinions should be accessible to educated people without regard to whether they're lawyers or not. Well, I think your experience as both a uh, lawyer practicing before the Supreme Court and advising clients, uh, as well as being a circuit court judge and trying to apply those as a uh, intermediate uh, appellate court uh, will help you uh, understand that and the importance of that. Uh, in the last few seconds we have here, uh, you know, I was uh, reflecting on the Ten Commandments cases, and I was thinking that as, as crazy as it struck me that it, um, they would uphold it in Texas but strike it down in uh, Kentucky, um, you know, I wondered, uh, I'm glad they didn't take out their blue pencil and try to edit the Ten Commandments, um, <laughs> because uh, several of them, uh, thou shalt not murder, uh, thou shalt not steal, Thou shalt not give false testimony against your neighbor. It's hard to me to see how those are uh, uh, violate the Establishment Clause, um, but uh, maybe that's another topic for another day. Thank you very much, Judge. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, uh, Senator Cornyn. Uh, Senator Leahy and I have been discussing the uh, schedule, and uh, there had been uh, a request for 30 additional minutes, all to be done tomorrow. And uh, 
uh, a schedule has been structured which will conclude shortly before 8 o'clock this evening and will take a little time in the morning and then move ahead to the public witnesses so that what will we be having is uh, Senator Durbin will have his 20 minutes uh, from uh, 5.30, 5 until 5.55. Senator Brownback will then have his 20 minutes, and Senator Coburn will have his 20 minutes. <coughs> I'm yielded back. And uh, the Republicans met and decided we would not take a third round in order to expedite the process. Uh, and uh, tomorrow morning, uh, Senator Kennedy is willing to negotiate 30 down to 20 if it's tomorrow morning, so he'll be on at 9 o'clock. And Senator Feinstein will be on this evening from uh, uh, 6.30 to 6.45, and again tomorrow morning from 9.20 to 9.35, and I'll post so everybody knows exactly where everybody stands, and Senator Feinstein will have the advantage to some extent of an overnight transcript, which he had been, had been concerned about. And uh, then I believe we will proceed next week to, we have an exec set for the 20th, but with agreement uh, among the Democrats that we can hold it on the... It is the 20th, the 20th is a Tuesday. My my proposal, and I would commit to you on this, that and just so people watching understand, uh, the judge knows this, that under our rules, when we have a, um, a markup and exec, when the nomination would come up, any senator has the right to, for, no, uh, for any reason whatsoever, no reason, to put it over for one week, which where this is now set for Tuesday, which would put it over to the following Tuesday. Uh, my proposal, and the, the chairman has been accommodating what we've been trying to do, and I would commit to him that we would uh, move the exec to Thursday of next week, which would give everybody plenty of time to read all the, the transcripts, everything else. On Thursday, we would waive, and I'm sure nobody on your side is going to ask uh, for the to put it over by one day. Uh, so we will we will debate it, whatever appropriate time that is on Thursday, we will vote on Thursday within the committee. Then, of course, it's out of our hands. It's up to the leadership to schedule what time they want on the floor. I understand they want to do it sometime appropriately. I think Senator, Senator Fresh, the leader, will want to bring it to the floor on Monday the 26th, but well, he will make the final judgment on that. And Senator Leahy and I have talked uh, between ourselves on the exec. Uh, we're going to set the pattern for 10-minute statements. Uh, and ask that uh, that pattern be followed. All senators uh, have rights uh, uh, as they choose. Uh, uh, I personally am opposed to a third round, uh, but in the face of requests by uh, many of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle for a third round, uh, and in light of its being a lifetime appointment for Chief Justice and all the other factors, uh, I want to accommodate people as best I can. And I don't want to run too far into tomorrow because I want to finish the public witnesses tomorrow. We may have to run uh, very late, but it's easier to run later with the public witnesses because we've got 31 and six panels, and they'll all be fresh. 
And uh, Judge Roberts, uh, whom I conferred with uh, before discussing the matter with Senator Leahy, uh, is a very, very good sport. And uh, the one question he answered positively and affirmatively was whether he could take it until 8 o'clock this evening. And he said he could, and I don't think it advisable to take him beyond that time. So we'll spill over a little bit into tomorrow morning. Mr. Chairman, I'm one I would, as I know, you've been fair in listening to us. We all, though, obviously, and I think Judge Roberts would be the first to say this. It's a very serious thing. We're talking about the Chief Justice of the United States. We should take time to do it, do it right. Uh, I commend Mrs. Roberts, who has sat through this. Uh, and, of course, you, Judge, can't see her, but a look of love and devotion is probably what is sustaining you through these uh, long hours from Mrs. Roberts. And uh, I, I commend her for doing it. But I also want to applaud the chairman. Uh, he's been fair. We've, we've discussed, I said yesterday or the day before, they, they blur, uh, that the the uh, chairman and I, I think have each other's home numbers on speed dial. We've talked so much. He has fulfilled every one of his commitments. We have uh, we worked hard to fulfill ours. We all take this seriously. Uh, a number of people announce how they're going to vote, and that's fine. Everybody has a right to do it. Every every member of the Senate is going to think of this seriously, and he or she is going to vote as they're going to vote. Um, I just want to make sure that when anybody votes that they know what they have. And with that, uh, Mr. Chairman, I commend you again for running a very fair, Chairman. very open, very honest hearing. Mr. Chairman. Well, thank you. Thank you for your cooperation, Senator Leahy. Just a moment, I'll recognize you, Senator Schumer. Um, I don't want anybody to feel they've been shortchanged by uh, spilling over a little. Uh, I feel my duty is to uh, have this matter uh, resolved by October 3rd. Uh, and that if, it, if confirmed, uh, uh, Judge Roberts can take the seat as Chief Justice on October 3rd. And uh, that's, that's what I'm looking toward. And uh, to the extent possible, I want people in this committee to feel good about what we're doing and have sufficient time. Senator Schumer. Chairman, I just wanted to go over the schedule. So we will start the third round this evening of 15-minute rounds and then continue tomorrow. Well, that's correct, except for... Uh, Senator Leahy was taking 10 and 10 as ranking, and Senator Kennedy is going to take 20, but all tomorrow morning, giving up 10 minutes for the morning. I get 15 tomorrow morning. You have 15 tomorrow morning, you have 15 this evening. Same here. And the same for Senator Schumer. Mr. Chairman, I just want to thank you. I think you're being, yes, I want to commend you and Senator Leahy. You're being fair, and we're getting a full opportunity to ask questions. Do I understand you're waving the fourth round, Senator Schumer? <laughs> Senator Durbin, you're recognized. The fifth. Senator, the fifth. Senator Durbin, you're recognized for 20 minutes. On to business, Judge Roberts. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you for your fairness, Judge Roberts. Take it to good to see you again, Mrs. Roberts, friends and families. Yesterday and again today, you've continued to prove your legal talents. Uh, I remember law students with your talents when I was in law school. I had to get to know them in the first year because. They were then off to the law review, and I was off to buy another Gilbert's outline. I didn't see him again. Um, but today I've noticed that questions have changed some. Uh, questions now are more, they've gone beyond your resume and beyond your legal skills. And I think it relates to the fact that so frequently when asked, you have said appropriately that you will be driven and inspired by the rule of law, which is 
an appropriate term, but a hard and cold term by itself. We know you have the great legal mind and have proven it with the questions here, but the questions that have been asked more and more today really want to know what's in your heart. Uh, and I think those are appropriate. When you look down from the bench or read a trial transcript, do you just see plaintiffs and parties and precedents or more? Do you see the people behind the precedents, the families behind the footnotes? I think that's what many of us are driving at with these questions. You've lived a comfortable life. Court cases are off, often involve people who have not. Many times contests between the powerful and the powerless. As someone said in the opening statement, uh, the powerless just with the rule of law and the Constitution on their side praying for relief for their day in court. Aside from a few pro bono cases, as important as they are, and I salute you for being involved in them, what would the powerless, the disenfranchised, minorities, and others see in your life experience that would lead them to believe that they would have a fighting chance in your court? Well, uh, Senator, I think there are many things that people could look to. Um, uh, you said I had a comfortable life. I think that's a, a fair characterization. Um, I had a middle-class upbringing in Indiana. Um, uh, as part of that, um, uh, I worked in the steel mills uh, outside of Gary uh, during the summers, as soon as I was old enough to do that. Um, and um, throughout my life, um, have been exposed to and mixed with at school, learned and played with people of a wide variety of backgrounds. Um, uh, comfortable, yes, uh, but isolated in no sense. Um, I was a, I would say, typical middle-class kid growing up in Indiana um, uh, and uh, had, I think, a, a, a great uh, uh, upbringing. I was privileged in the sense of having um, my parents and, and uh, sisters uh, contributing to my upbringing and education. Um, and I think people looking at uh, my life uh, would see someone in that experience. And obviously with limitations, I wasn't raised in other places in the country and might have different perspective if I were. I wasn't raised in different circumstances and would have different experiences if I, as, if I were. As you look at the Supreme Court, the people in there come from widely different backgrounds and experiences, and I think that's a, a healthy thing. But as far as someone going into court, and looking to see why they would expect uh, to get a fair hearing uh, from me. Um, I think, and I can answer this with respect to the court I'm on now, uh, it's hard for me to imagine what their case is about that I haven't been on their side at some point in my career. If it's somebody who's representing welfare recipients who've had their benefits cut off, I've done that. If it's somebody who's representing a criminal defendant who's facing a long sentence in prison, I've done that. If it's a prosecutor who's doing his job to defend society's interest against criminals, I've been on the side of the prosecution. If it's somebody who's representing environmental interests, environmentalists in the Supreme Court, I've done that. If it's somebody who's representing the plaintiffs in an antitrust case, I've been in that person's shoes. I've done that. If it's somebody representing a defendant in an antitrust case, I've done that as well. It's one of the, uh, I think, great 
benefits of the opportunity I've had to practice law as I have is that it has not been a specialized practice. I've not just represented one side or the other. I've been represented all of those interests. And I think those people will know that I have had their perspective. I've been on the other side of the podium with a case just like theirs. And that should, I hope, and I hope it does now, uh, encourage them that I will be fair and that I will decide the case according to the law, but I will have seen it from their perspective. So let me follow through on that, because I think that's what people need to hear. But we need to apply it to your real life and legal experiences. Let me talk to you about a case that you were a private attorney and involved in. Today there are about 45 million uninsured people in America. Too often Americans with insurance can't receive coverage for medically necessary procedures and have to fight the insurance companies. In my home state of Illinois, we have a law called the Illinois Health Maintenance Organization Act. I think you're familiar with it. It provides that if a patient's primary care physician deems a proposed procedure to be medically necessary, but their HMO disagrees and denies coverage for the procedure, the patient may have the HMO's decision reviewed by an outside physician the determination of that outside physician binding on the HMO. You challenged this law on behalf of an HMO that refused to pay $95,000 for the shoulder surgery of Deborah Moran of my state of Illinois. Case went to the Supreme Court in 2002. You argued for Rush Prudential. You argued they weren't subject to the Illinois law governing HMOs because you said they weren't really an insurance company. You claimed that since the HMO was not providing health care, but merely a promise to pay for health care, it was exempt. Thankfully, from my point of view, you lost the case. If you had won it, it would have put millions of American consumers and families at risk of losing coverage for necessary health care. Judge Roberts, did you have any reservations about taking this case? Uh, no, Senator, I did not. But, uh, the result in the case, I did lose. Um, uh, I lost five to four, if I'm remembering correctly. In other words, four of the justices on the Supreme Court thought the argument we were ma I was making on behalf of my client was correct. Um, it has always been my position that I do not sit in judgment other than once I've satisfied myself that the legal arguments are reasonable ones within the mainstream, if you will, uh, that I don't decide whether that's the way I would rule as a judge uh, or whether I would rule the other way. Um, uh, my practice has been to take the cases that come to me, uh, uh, and if the other side in that case had come to me first, I would have taken their side. So uh, you, d you, don't, you didn't step back at any point in your practice and say, no, I'm not going to do this. I, I can't be associated with a case or a cause, even though it may be legal and ethical, that might cause so much harm to so many innocent people. That's a judgment for the legal system to make, for the, they're asserting legal rights. Lawyers aren't judges when they're representing clients. They don't sit there and say, or maybe some do, I don't. I think it's a basic fundamental principle of the legal system and the bar that you take clients who have reasonable arguments. Now, I'm not talking about frivolous arguments. I don't take cases in which those are raised. Uh, but the lawyers aren't the judges. The judges are. Now, the case you mentioned, you've explained the arguments on one side. There were legal arguments on the other side. And four justices agreed with those. This isn't an extreme case when it's decided five to four. And I, that's one of the very point I was making earlier, that I take cases on all sides of the issue. You can go through and find cases. For example, when I was asked to assist uh, an inmate on Florida's death row, I didn't step back and say, well, 
is this really a good thing uh, for me to assist this individual guilty of, uh, convicted of particular uh, murders? Um, I took the case. Uh, when the various pro bono uh, activities in which my firm was involved, I didn't sit in judgment and say, is that something I agree with? Is it not something I agree with? I was a lawyer involved in that area of the law, and I thought it my obligation to take the cases that come in. Many of the organizations that oppose your nomination represent minorities in America. You have the distinction of being opposed by LULAC. This, of course, is the first time this Hispanic organization has ever opposed a Supreme Court nominee. You're also opposed by Maldif. I personally think that their feelings go beyond the comment, illegal amigos, that you talked about yesterday. And I want to point you to one particular area that they find troubling when I speak to them, and I find troubling. And it goes back to the case of Plyler versus Doe. 1982 Supreme Court case held it unconstitutional to deny elementary education to children on the basis of their immigration status. It was a Texas case. The court struck down the Texas law and allowed elementary schools 23 years ago to refuse uh, entrance to undocumented children, struck down the law that allowed the schools to refuse entrance. On the day the case was decided, and I think the timing is important here because it appears to be kind of a gratuitous comment. It isn't as if you were asked for an opinion. On the day it was decided, you co-authored a memo that criticized the Solicitor General's office for failing to file a brief supporting the Texas law which would have refused education to these children. Your memo disagreed with the administration's position on the case, so it isn't as if you were arguing the Reagan administration's position they had taken a different position on the case. Can you describe your involvement in the case? And I guess more importantly, can you describe now how you feel about this today, 23 years later? Well, when the largest, I'll just finish and I'll leave you the time you need to answer. When the largest, fastest growing segment of America's population is Hispanic, when the major Hispanic organizations feel that this showed real insensitivity to who they were and what their children needed, can you explain that memo that really wasn't part of the Reagan agenda? Well, Why I did think, you say this? Senator, if I'm remembering the memo, and it was 23 years ago, and the case that was decided was, I believe, again, a divided decision by the Supreme Court. If I'm remembering the memo correctly, uh, it was uh, making the point that the position was inconsistent with the Attorney General's litigation policy uh, approach, if, if, if that's the right memorandum. It is. That, well, in that case, again, as a staff lawyer, I thought it was my obligation to call the, to the Attorney General's attention uh, activities in the department that I thought were inconsistent with what he had articulated as his approach. And that's what I would have been doing in, in that case. Um, and again, it would have been apparently supporting uh, the state of Texas in its legislative determination in that area. Well, did you agree with the decision now, or pardon me, then, or do you agree with it now? I don't, I haven't looked at the decision in Plyler versus Doe in, in 23 years, uh, Senator, and there's nothing gratuitous about the memorandum. It obviously came out because the decision came out. That would have been uh, why I was advising the Attorney General with respect to it. Um, uh, obviously, the importance of the availability of education uh, for uh, all is, is, is vital, 
that's a different question than the legal issues involved and whether a state law should be struck down. Uh, so, so let me say this. 23 years later, millions of children have benefited from this decision. They have been educated in America. Many have gone on to become citizens. Some are business people, some are professionals, some are serving in our military today because Plyler was decided in a way that you apparently disagreed with 23 years ago. So my question to you, for the Hispanic groups that oppose your candidacies at this point, or your nomination, I should say, what is your feeling? Is this settled law, as far as you are concerned, about our commitment and education? I, Senator, I, as I said, I have not looked at the decision in Plyler versus Doe in, in 23 years. It's not an area that I've focused on. Um, and it, the issue is not my policy view about what is a good idea for educational policy or national policy or whether what the Texas legislators determined was a good idea for Texas policy. The question was a particular legal issue. And again, the Supreme Court was divided on that. So it's not as if we're talking about a position outside the mainstream. And what I was explaining, uh, this was viewed as the memo states, if it was looked at in full, uh, it was something that I thought was inconsistent with what I understood the Attorney General's approach to be, and it was my job to call that to his attention, which is what I did. Okay, I, I, you've, you've, I think you have accurately taken refuge in the fact that you were working for someone. The fact that this memo came out the day after the decision, it, it, I think, is an important circumstance. But let me go back to the beginning. The first question, the first day, was Senator Specter. Wouldn't it be a jolt to the system in America if we decided that we would no longer offer education to these of children? Well, of course, Senator. And, and, and so the decision in Plyler uh, is a precedent of, of the court. I don't think it's, I'm not aware that it's been called into question in the intervening 23 years that have passed since the time I wrote those two paragraphs in the memo. Um, and that is a precedent who is entitled to respect under principles of stare decisis. And it's something that's where I would begin if an issue arose in this area. I'm not aware that any is arising in this area, but if an issue were to arise, that's where I would begin with the president I just think of the millions Supreme of Americans would like to have heard you say, I think it's a good idea. I'm glad we did it for America. But if you can't say it, you can't. Well, Senator, if I could just make the point that the issue was not whether or not I thought it was a good idea. That's not the job of a lawyer presenting legal advice and legal uh, uh, the, the, the legal implications uh, of an issue to his boss, the Attorney General. He wasn't interested in whether I thought it was a good idea or not. He was interested in the legal question of whether or not this was consistent with his policy and his approach. That's not taking refuge. That's explaining the circumstances of a memorandum. Um, and it's not uh, uh, avoiding an expression about whether it's a good idea or not. It's explaining that what we're dealing with. But you've been unequivocal in your statement supporting Brown versus the Board of Education. No one has suggested in any respectful way that we should return to the bad old days of separate but equal. I mean, you've accepted that's part of America. And the point I'm trying to make to you is whether we're talking about millions of uninsured people or millions of Hispanic children, I would think that it would be a basic value. You'd say this is good for America, for people to have insurance and bad for them to be denied. It is good for America to see children with education rather than to see them in the streets ignorant. Senator, it seems so fundamental. I don't think you want judges who will decide cases before them under the law on what they think is good 
simply good policy for America. There are legal questions there, and I'm sure there are clients that I have represented in court that you would agree with. You would say that's the right side of the cause to be on, whether it's the environmental interests I represented in the Tahoe case, whether it's the welfare recipients I represented pro bono in the Bivens case, whether it's the cause of the inmate on death row that I assisted in in Florida, whether it's the environmental interests in Glacier Bay that I represented or in the Grand Canyon on a pro bono basis. I'm sure I could go down my list of clients and find clients that you would say that's the right side, that's the cause of justice. And there are others with whom you disagree. Uh, my point is simply this, that in representing clients, uh, in serving as a lawyer, it's not my job to decide whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. The job of the lawyer is to articulate the legal arguments on behalf of the client. I'm, I'm just trying to get to the bottom line about your values. And uh, if it is if it is strictly a question about whether this is a legal and ethical legal question, or an ethical legal question that can be contested, uh, then there are many, many positions you can take in the law. Some I wouldn't be comfortable with, some you may not be comfortable with. Let me ask you one other question. Senators Coburn and Brownback have, I think, sincerely and accurately expressed their views on the issue of abortion. I think they have been very articulate in saying so. Many would argue that it's one of the most divisive legal and political issues we faced in our generation. I would like to ask you this question. Why do you think this issue is so important to so many women in America? The whole question of Roe versus Wade, the question of reproductive freedom, and the question of freedom of choice. Why do you think it's so important? Well, I think it's important, and again, and, uh, to women on both sides of the issue, and also I think to men as well, but obviously it's an issue that directly affects women. It's a fundamental question, uh, as the court has addressed uh, in, uh, in Roe and in Casey, uh, that obviously affects the lives directly of millions of Americans and the availability uh, of uh, rights under that decision affects women. Um, but I know there are people of strongly held views on both sides of the issue. And I know that the responsibility of a judge uh, confronting this issue is to decide the case according to the rule of law consistent with the precedents, not to take sides in a dispute as a matter of policy, but to decide it according to the law. And to the extent that your, your questions earlier about um, you know, ca causes we agree with, causes we don't agree with. I do want to emphasize that there is a unifying theme in my approach, both as a lawyer and as a judge, and that is the cause that I believe in passionately, the one to which I have devoted my professional career, is the vindication of the rule of law. And I tried to explain in my opening statement on Monday why that's important, because without it, any other rights that you may agree with as a matter of policy uh, are meaningless. You need to have courts that will enforce the rule of law if you're going to have rights that mean anything. I'm running out of time, but I do want to give you an opportunity. Last night I, I passed a memo along to you relative to the Bob Jones University case. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at it and can tell me whether that is your handwriting on that memo, whether you were in fact in a, a meeting involving the Bob Jones University decision with the Reagan administration. Did you provide any input in the meeting or have any conversations with Justice Department personnel about the case? Uh, it, is my, it is my handwriting. It's a list. It's apparently a meeting to discuss a number of civil rights issues. Um, six of them I, I see. Um, I did not 
participate in any way in the Bob Jones case that was apparently discussed according to this memo at the meeting. Uh, the recusal rule that was at issue uh, says that I shouldn't uh, participate by way of consultation or advice, and I, I did not. Thank you for clarifying that. Thank you, Mr. Thank you Senator Durbin. Senator Brownback. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Um, Judge Roberts again. Mr. Chairman, I want to enter into the record. Uh, some has been cited to already, but uh, sent yesterday from the ABA the uh, uh, statement by the ABA that um, Judge uh, John Roberts is uh, well qualified as a unanimous opinion by the a uh, ABA for the position of Chief, Chief Justice of the United States. Without objection, they will be made a part of the record. Thank you. Uh, and uh, Judge Roberts, I would note now you've done 18 hours and 30 minutes of testimony. Uh, just for reference, because people like statistics and records, Judge Breyer uh, was 18 hours and he was through. Uh, you may have the end in sight, but you're, you're not there yet and you're going to pass, uh, pass Breyer and perhaps others. Um, I want to take you back to the First Amendment discussions. And this is an issue in an area uh, that I've just not understood where the court's been going. And I, don't, I hope you're going to be willing to answer some of this analysis or give me at least your your thought on how the court got to where they did on these issues. Uh, First Amendment, everybody knows, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Well known, well regarded, highly, broadly interpreted by the courts to the point that you would get court opinions, and I just want to quote these, this is actually in a Supreme Court opinion, uh, that the court would, in the past four years when this opinion was issued in um, I think it was 2003, the last four years, the court um, had sternly disapproved, sternly disapproved restrictions upon uh, certain forms of speech such as virtual child pornography, court said can't do that, limit that speech, tobacco advertising, court said can't limit that speech, dissemination of illegally intercepted communications, can't limit that speech, um, sexually explicit cable programming, can't limit that speech. Right, so the court has been, it seems to me, very pronounced in this area of free speech, can't limit it, basically, to the Congress. Can't limit it. And to the point, you know, where it goes to the issue of virtual child pornography, and that was the case of um, Ashcroft versus Free Speech Coalition. Um, and I want, I want to describe this in a little bit of detail because I want to back it up and ask another question associated with it. Ashcroft versus Free Speech Coalition court struck down a congressional statute regulating pornography, in this case Child Pornography Prevention Act of 1996, expanded the federal prohibition on pornography to include virtual child pornography, realistic images which were made without the use of actual children. But the Congress based its opinion on the basis that um, pedophiles will use this material to recruit uh, over the internet, individuals uh, to draw in children into sexual activity. And so we found out about that, investigated it, did a number of hearings and said, we've got to stop this stuff. The court says you can't do it. It's a limitation on free speech. Then, uh, not uh, long ago, uh, matter of fact, the opinion was issued in 2003, uh, we had a big debate on campaign finance reform in front of the Congress. Uh, one of the members of our committee, Senator Feingold, was one of the lead sponsors of the McCain-Feingold piece of legislation. Um, and it came in front of the courts, McConnell versus Federal Election Commission, and the court largely upheld the McCain-Feingold law, one section of which 
did this, prohibited corporations, labor unions, and other organizations from political advertisement that mentioned a specific candidate or office holder within 60 days of a general election. You may be, you're probably very familiar with this. It was a big national debate. Under the court decision, this congressional action prohibiting speech, and not just any speech, and not just pornography, this is political speech close to the time when people are making decisions on elections. Court decided that this congressional action prohibiting political speech was upheld under a First Amendment, ostensibly designed to protect this, uh, I would contend, form of political participation and speech. And I looked at that. I, I voted on the McCain-Feingold law. I did not think there was any way the court would hold that this is constitutional because you're limiting political free speech and right when people are making their decision. And one of the lead reasons or the lead abilities we have in this country is to be able to criticize the government. And certainly at a point in time when it matters the most, right ahead of elections. How do you square such a broad interpretation of the First Amendment in these cases and such a limitation on political free speech? Can you explain that to me? Well, um Senator, I'm not sure that I can put the two together side by side and, and talk about it, other, other than to say that I, I think the court tends to address each case on its own terms. And in the case of the uh, Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, um, I do know that we're uh, dealing there with an extraordinarily extensive record um, in that case. Um, uh, the judicial opinions addressing the issue before the three-judge district court, uh, I know, went on for several hundred pages just dealing with the records and the issues involved, uh, the record that had been developed, including before, uh, before Congress. And my reading of the court's opinion uh, uh, in the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act case is that that was a case where the court's uh, decision was driven in large part by the record that had been compiled by Congress. I think the determination there was based, just reading the opinion, it's, there's no great insight that, that uh, the extensive record carried a lot of weight with, with the justices. Now, with respect to uh, the other areas, I, 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 again, I think the court would tend to look at those, sort of put the one case aside and then move on to the next case, and they're dealing there with uh, developments in that area. Um, and again, I, I, I... Doesn't this strike you as odd, these well, two side by side under the same First Amendment? Um, uh, only in the sense, uh, Senator, that obviously they come out different ways and, and your point that the political speech uh, is generally regarded as at the core of what the First Amendment was designed to protect and some of the other speech is, is not. I certainly appreciate that concern, but whether, again, whether the particular cases are correctly decided or not is not something I feel appropriate for me to... I, I looked at those and I just, this doesn't, didn't make much sense. If you're going to read it expansively on the First Amendment, which I agree with, that should be consistently done. I want to go with um, an issue that is likely to come in front of you, and I, I recognize you're not going to give a pre-opinion on it, but I, I want to just make a point in talking about it, and that's the issue of marriage and its definition by the courts and the taking of the issue of marriage from legislative bodies to the court. And this is one of the most driving issues in the political environment in the United States today. Um, if the court comes in and trumps this issue 
and says legislative bodies cannot decide this issue. Here it is as a matter of constitutional law. Uh, it will create this enormous jolt in the system. In a series of laws, marriage has been decided by legislative bodies in the states. And it's been uh, the definition of marriage uh, as the union of a man and a woman has been passed uh, in 45 of our 50 states have either constitutional or amendments or statutes on the book that preserve the traditional definition of marriage. It's been in all regions of the, uh, of the country. I, I bring it up for you because a federal court has now ruled. In Nebraska, one federal judge uh, has said that uh, the Nebraska constitutional amendment, now all the states are rushing to pass constitutional amendments, but everybody's scared of what the U.S. Supreme Court's going to do. Nebraska passes a state constitutional amendment by 70% vote of the Nebraskan people. And these are good-hearted, good people. They don't. Uh, they they, they want to try to do what's right. And one federal judge comes in, and then he throws all these federal constitutional issues on it. Violated the First Amendment right to free association. Violated equal protection guarantees. And then. I don't know where he got this one, represented an unconstitutional bill of attainer, uh, which is legislation drafted at a particular individual. I just uh, hope, um, if you're confirmed on the court, that you would look at what happens if the court comes in and stomps on this issue uh, today that has stirred up so much discussion. And these are issues properly left to legislative bodies and people to shape and to look at and to debate and to consider and move back and forth with in the legislative arenas. But if you come in and you say there is a constitutional right to a broader definition of marriage, and you do that, and the court says that's the way it's going to be, uh, it, it takes something out of the system that should be in and in the discussion, and it should be allowed to mature through there and us come up at, at some point, rather than the firestorm that that will create. And we'll be here years later, like in the series of Roe cases, where after 30 years now, there's not more acceptance of the Roe opinion, there's less in America. Not like Brown versus the Board of Education, after it's resolved and solved over the years, the society looks, okay, that was, that was the right way to go. And we would all say that today. Roe has gone the other way. And this would create another one if that one is, is picked up and stomped on uh, by, the, um, by the courts. Um, I want to talk with you um, uh, on another issue and just get your opinion of the Constitution, and then I'm going to frame it. You would agree under the Constitution that the legislative bodies, and particularly under the U.S. Constitution, that Congress has the power to appropriate money? Yes. It's the framers regarded that as the basic legislative power, the power of the purse. And that that power is not given to the judiciary. It is given to the legislative branch of government. Yes. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, in making his point, I, th I think it was Hamilton, that this was the least dangerous branch, emphasized that the courts have neither the power of the sword nor the power of the purse. I, I want to point out to you, um, and this is happening in state judiciaries, this is happening uh, and being considered now in the U.S. federal courts, uh, the federal or the court's role in appropriating money. And you'll have in front of you a case, the Solomon Amendment, that was considered here. This is a recent Third Circuit of Appeals case. 
struck down the Solomon Amendment on constitutional grounds. Solomon Amendment passed by Congress, Jerry Solomon, long-term member of Congress, wonderful gentleman, uh, since passed away. Um, had conditioned a university receipts of federal funds on the universities granting equal access to the military for purposes of recruiting students. So he said, you know, you, you need to allow military personnel access if you want to receive federal funds. It's considered by Congress, was passed. Third Circuit Court said, struck down the Solomon Amendment on constitutional grounds. Decision's been appealed to you. Uh, I obviously don't want you to declare your, your, your position on this. I would ask you if you can state on this, the obvious one, first we have the, we have the role of the power of the purse is in the Congress, not in the, the uh, judiciary. May the Congress attach conditions to the receipt of federal funds? Well, Congress historically has, has done that. Uh, the, the spending clause power, for example, South Dakota against Dole uh, said that if you accept federal highway funds, you have to raise the drinking age to 21, and that was upheld by the, the Supreme Court. So certainly as a general proposition, the Congress has that authority. I considered a case involving a waiver of sovereign immunity. The condition on the receipt of federal funds was that the uh, uh, Washington's metro system waive its sovereign immunity with respect to disability claims and uh, by a two-to-one vote we upheld uh, that exercise of authority under the spending clause. Well, I, this all amendment will be in front of you if you're confirmed and obviously you can't comment on it. It's just that, that if the courts start appropriating money through this route, um, <laughs> The, the rub between the systems and the branches of government, I, I think, will be absolutely extraordinary. And there will become more and more innovative ways that the Congress will try to find to limit the judiciary. And it's not healthy for the system, and it's certainly not healthy for the judiciary. If it starts into the business, goes further into the business of appropriating funds. And it bleeds down through the system. It's not just then in the U.S. Supreme Court. It goes through through the state court systems as well. And I would um, hope that that right of the uh, Congress would be respected with adequate judicial restraint. Uh, as you noted with me this morning, that being the major check on the judiciary. Although I think we can limit uh, what the uh, judiciary can review under the Constitution. I want to get you, in the limited time I have left, um, just uh, two quick points. One is on the end of life issues. Uh, you've had a discussion with several members on end-of-life issues. Um, and this was discussed, for instance, uh, Washington versus Glucksburg uh, is the lead recent case, 1997 case, upheld a state statute banning assisted suicide. Uh, would you agree that that case held that there is not a constitutional right to die? A right to die does not exist in the Constitution. I, I think that's an accurate conclusion of the, of, of the holding in that in that case. Again, without expressing views on correctness or not, since that's where the line has been drawn in terms of what nominees can say, my understanding is that that court rejected the conclusion. It went through the analysis of what the liberty interest protected by the Due Process Clause included, and it concluded that there wasn't a right under the Liberty Clause that trumped the regulation that was at issue in that case. And I believe even the standard that the court held in this case was the rationally related standard, the, the lowest level of review, that the state can find a rational basis, they can limit uh, these um, assisted suicide uh, 
bans uh, uh, efforts across the country. Once, they, once the court concluded that there wasn't a fundamental right that was in, uh, uh, con in conflict with the state regulation, then the court applied the rational relation test to uphold the state law. And you have, uh, that would be subject to, in your opinion, the continued status of stare decisis as an opinion of the court and the deference and the um, dependency that the society has had on that ruling would have the same status as any opinion of the U.S. Supreme Court on the basis of stare decisis in your it, opinion? It would be subject to the same analysis as any other precedent of the court, yes. Regardless whether it's a recent opinion, later opinion, this has the same standing because it's an opinion of the courts. Some of the court's cases talk about how long an opinion has been standing. Some of the court's cases say that's less of a factor. Uh, but it, it, it is a, a decision of the court, a precedent on that issue. Uh, any question of revisiting it would have to be consistent with the principles of stare decisis. Um, uh, the, and we've talked about those principles yes. and how they apply. I just I wanted to make clear that, that it doesn't matter the length of time the opinion has set, the number of times it's been revisited. Stare decisis is a basic principle that applies to any opinion previously held by the court. Yes. Uh, and I just I would note um, uh, this is an uh, opinion put forward as you get from a lot of us. Uh, that these are issues that are very difficult and they're ones that are actually quite well suited for the legislative process to discuss because you have uh, different views of life. Is life sacred per se or is it subject to some sort of objective uh, review? It's a very difficult issue here in this body and across the country and, and it's one that has a lot of emotion and um, it's a very important issue for the society really itself to talk through and through a lot of a lot of discussions we have. I want to talk uh, on a separate hatch you would you would carry as the Chief Justice of the United States and that's as the head of the Judicial Conference of the United States um, and this is about court reorganization. There have been um, proposals put forward to split the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals Ninth Circuit, the Far Western Circuit, uh, very large circuit. Uh, the, um, there's discussions in the Congress about splitting that circuit uh, in two because of its size, its caseload, a uh, number of other reasons that have been proffered or put forward. You would agree that uh, under Article One, Section 8 that Congress has the power to constitute tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court? Yes, Senator. Um, and that these inferior courts would include such things as the circuit court and the lower district courts of the federal yes. uh, federal government. So that Congress would have the power, its power. It Congress has the power under the Constitution to split this, the uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, I, I know that Congress did just that with respect to the old Fifth Circuit, which used to run from Florida uh, out, out through Texas and they split it into the, the new Fifth Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit. Um, and I don't think any questions have been raised about Congress's authority to do that. And you don't raise those here as, as the um, head of the Judicial Conference of the United States? Well, um, I wouldn't want or to jump into that head of the, just yeah. yet, but um, I'm not aware of any objections or, or to Congress's authority. I don't think that's the issue. I know the judges have various views on whether it's a good idea or not, and uh, since it affects them, I know some of the judges have expressed those 
uh, views, but the question of congressional authority to do that is, is not something I've seen raised. Hey, thank you. Um, Judge Roberts, this will be my last chance to interact with you at, uh, at this uh, way. I, I uh, do commend you. And I also just note, too, that a lot of uh, hopes and prayers are riding on you from a lot of people across this country and around the world. Uh, that's, it's just such an incredible, important time with so many big issues uh, that uh, I think I can speak for millions of people uh, in saying that. So Godspeed to you and your family. Thank you, Senator. Thank you very much, Senator Brambach. Judge Roberts, would you care to take a break at this time? No, I'm fine. Really? Yep. Sure. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, Senator Leahy says you're the only one, but that's good. <laughs> Senator Coburn. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, Judge Roberts, I'll try not to take my 20 minutes. Uh, um, I've heard a little trend uh, that I think needs to be dispelled. I've, I've, I've heard it put forth that you might not be fair to women. I've heard it put forth that you might not be fair to minorities uh, or Latinos. I've heard it uh, that you might not be fair to those people with AIDS. And, and Mr. Chairman, I'd like to just put into the record uh, about six different documents here that clarifies the record on Judge Roberts' action on affirmative action, on disability rights, on civil rights, on women's rights, uh, his uh, actual, actually, uh, his involvement in the University of Richmond versus Bell, Title IX, and also his Title VII employment discrimination record that I think refutes the underlying tone that I've heard here that is very disturbing to me. And Without objection, uh, Senator Coburn, they'll all be made a part of the record. And, and the reason it's disturbing to me is I want lawyers who'll take the wrong cases for the right people to preserve our country. And the very fact that you may have taken a case that some other lawyer might not view as right is the very thing that makes the justice system work. And one of the things that you've reaffirmed is one of the reasons we have people not having equal justice under the law, sometimes they don't have qualified attorneys that will do that. So first of all, kudos to you. Number two, uh, the, the fact that you write positions as a staff lawyer, young, I remember what I was like when I was 25, and it wasn't very pretty. Some people say it's not very pretty now. I, I also would remind you that you got another five years from Senator Feinstein. She said you'd be on there 40 years, so I'll, I'll power to you. Um, <laughs> but the fact is, is I've noticed something that I really don't appreciate, and that is this kind of trend to say that that you're not a kind, you're not a considerate person, uh, that the fact that you have a wife that's an attorney and a young daughter that's going to be into this world, that you wouldn't believe that they ought to have equal rights, uh, that you don't believe in hiring practices that are fair, you don't believe in, in treating people fairly on the basis of a flimsy record. And I want the American people to know that that record doesn't hold up to the smell test that has been presented here today. And uh, it, it's a little bit disturbing to me because it's this subtle way of trying to say you're not who you really are. And, and you've not been able to defend yourself in that because you can't comment without creating a problem for you in terms of being a fair justice. So you're, you're kind of in a double bind uh, and I want you to know that I want to defend that because I don't think it's appropriate. Uh, the other thing is I, uh, I want to enter into the record uh, both the chronology of cases that Justice Breyer and Justice Ginsburg decided after they met with the White House, the Clinton White House, before they were nominated. There was a total of, uh, on Justice Breyer, 
one, two, three, seven cases on Justice Ginsburg, uh, uh, five cases, uh, the implication that you're not ethical uh, is the other subtle implication that comes across there, and, and, and I find it uh, tremendously uh, uncomfortable that that is the trend where this is going. The other thing is I, I want to address for you and the American public, uh, Senator Schumer yesterday quoted some statements that are made, uh, which a lot of people don't agree with, and, and you didn't identify with. Uh, 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 Tony Perkins at uh, the Family Research Council and others. The fact that they made them, those statements, whether we agree with them or not, isn't the important thing. The important thing is that the court is losing the confidence of the American people or they never would have said that. These aren't bad people. These are people with a perception that says, you know, what's going on here? And, and let, let me just list for a minute why they might think that. Uh, we had today a, a judge in California say you can't use under God in the pledge. Uh, the abortion issue we've talked about, homosexual marriage we've talked about, the fact that the judges have said online pornography is fine. Uh, regardless of what the Congress has said. Uh, parents who know that their 12-year-old their daughter can be given oral contraceptive without their permission, an IUD in many places without their permission, but they can't be given an aspirin. Uh, you know, these, these very crucial issues, not to say they're right or wrong, but how we got to the decision is causing some Americans to lose confidence and as you and I spoke in my office, one of my greatest concerns, and I ask you, uh, how do we build that back up? How do we build the confidence of the American people back in the court? And part of that is the work of getting more consistent, more unanimous opinions, but also it is making sure the court does what it should do and the legislature do what it should do. And, and I don't want you to be, feel committed to me at all uh, and I don't want to influence, I'm very pleased that every time you're going to look at the law, look at the precedents, look at the facts, look at the litigants, and then work with the other justices to try to do what is under the law, the Constitution, our Constitution, and our statutes. So the only question I would have for you is this one final, and, and I'll finish, I hope, before 10 minutes are consumed. Where did our law, would you teach the American public where our law came from? Where, where's the base? I mean, there was law before the American Revolution. Where did our law come from? What did, where did it come from? Well, before before the Revolution, of course, we had we're under the British legal system. Uh huh. And before that system, uh, you go back under the legal system in, in Britain to Magna Carta, uh, and the dispute between the the king and the uh, lords there as they tried to uh, establish their rights against the king or central government was a key part of the uh, development of, of English law uh, and since since that time. And, and prior to that, but some of the input to that was what some people, these very people who are worried, these very people who have lost confidence, call natural law. The ideas came from somewhere, didn't they? Uh, like, don't kill somebody. Don't steal from them. Be truthful. Where did those come from? Those came from the natural tendencies of what we were taught in beliefs through the years that would best support our society. There's a theological component to that to many people, 
but the fact is is there's a basis for the laws that we have and, and it's and it's proven consistent through the years, even as it comes to America, that if we enforce those tenants, we all are better off. Audible thanks you for listening to the Senate Judiciary Committee's hearings on the nomination of Judge John Roberts to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Please visit audible.com for the best downloadable audiobooks, as well as subscriptions and podcasts of top audio programs, including Fresh Air, Car Talk, Scientific American, Harvard Business Review, and Charlie Rose. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.